This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Thursday to you. July 13th, also French Fries Day. This is uh, the day we're going to celebrate those yummy, yummy uh, vegetables. You can't get enough of them. This is uh, Jeff and his family after uh, driving away from McDonald's. Is that it, Jeffrey? Sounds about right. Have you had those fries? Oh, yeah. They're incredible. And you're right. You said it. You can never get too many of them. I mean, really. I mean, can you have... Do you ever have somebody that doesn't finish their fries? Yeah, they're the weirdest people in the world. Those people, they should not exist. And the irony today of French Friday is it just so happens that Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, is in France. Mm. And people are planning to fry him today in France. Sounds about right. Fry him in a good way. It's Bastille Day in France. And so uh, President Trump is there, I guess, celebrating uh, France's National Military Day. They're going to have a big military parade. He's going to, I guess, hang out. You got to know he's going to have some French fries. Yeah, he's going he's asking for them. What do you think French French fries look like? Um probably I'm going to go with nothing like our fries. They That's probably they are probably so upset that we associate French fries oh, yeah. with France yeah. that they don't even have potatoes there anymore. They probably have like because it's so they're, uh, it's so gourmet, they probably would only have like four fries on the plate and just a tiny drop of ketchup hmm. on a white plate. That's what it would look like. Do you think Julia Child ever made French fries on her show? Oh, yeah. Don't you think? She made everything. Welcome to the French chef. I'm Julia Child. You, uh, man, you do a great Julia Child. Where did that come from? From my, my voice, your mouth. Yeah. Welcome day. Welcome to French Fries Day. It's, we got a, we got <laughs> we got a great show. Julia Child will be with us. Apparently, uh, we're going to be talking about the adventures of boredom. I mean, is is it good to be bored? Is it bad to be bored? Is it a sign of something? We've got a great uh, book. Yawn is the name of the book. We'll be reviewing Adventures in Boredom. And it'll it'll blow your mind because all of a sudden you're going to realize, man, I'm bored. Maybe that's why you get a little depressed. Maybe that's why you're down. You're kind of frustrated with life. I'm excited to hear this because I would love to be bored, to just have the time to be bored. Time to be bored. Oh, that would be wonderful. Uh, about 70% too uh, of like the highest performing people tend to get bored. So if you're a high performer, you can also get bored because you, you end up maybe doing a lot of stuff that you don't want to do because everyone thinks you're the best at it. So why don't you keep doing this? Then the next thing you know, your whole life has taken a turn and now you're just doing and living a life that's not yours. Tell you what, never been bored eating French fries. Never. Oh, yeah. Well, it goes so fast, too. You know, they're always gone so fast. So we'll get to that fun about boredom, celebrating fries, President Trump in France, 
So much to cover, so much to talk about. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what else do we need to be paying attention to? Authorities in Pennsylvania say they have uncovered human remains and identified one victim in the search for four men who vanished last week. The discovery comes after investigators spent days searching a farm after a signal from one of the man's uh, missing men's cell phone led them there. Officials said this morning that Additional remains were also found that have yet to be identified. Oh, boy. Uh, remember, we talked about it yesterday. Cosmo Donardo, a 20-year-old man whose family owns the farm that's being searched, was arrested earlier Wednesday for allegedly trying to sell one of the missing men's cars. Oh, brother. Cosmo. This isn't going to go well. Cosmo. Allegedly. And by the way, ruining the BYU mascot's name. Yeah, that's probably one of the bigger disservices here. Jeez, that's sad. Kit Rock announced Wednesday that he plans to run for U.S. Senate in 2018, potentially challenging Michigan Democratic Senator Debbie Stabnow. Uh, he has yet to file his paperwork, so it's not totally official, but he does have a website up and running. He also apparently has some T-shirts, a hat, stickers, you know, the trappings of yeah. running for office. Uh, as well as some uh, slogans, including All Rock the Party and In Rock We Trust. <laughs> oh, wow. Kid Rock could be the first of several politically inexperienced celebrities in the coming elections to give politics a try with Kanye and Dwayne The Rock Johnson tossing oh, their. At least talking about doing something. Kanye sent out a tweet. I don't know. He's actually Kanye's going to do it. You can just tell. So we'll see what happens. On his self-assigned quest to understand America, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg has embarked on a 30-state journey to meet people who don't typically cross his path. There oh, are rules boy. for ordinary people about how you meet an extraordinary entrepreneur on, sh- on such short notice. Yeah. Rule one, you probably won't know that he's coming to your house. Oh, He'll just show up. And they'll call like 30 minutes ahead and say, hey, he's coming over. Zuckerberg wa- wants to hang with you. Yeah. Uh, no, rule two, if you do know you're supposed to keep it to yourself. Yeah, don't you don't call the neighbors Don't over. tell anybody. And it says, here's what it's like for an Ohio family found out that the 33-year-old billionaire was dropping by for dinner. Uh, and yesterday, Zuckerberg was in Wilston, North Dakota. To learn about fracking, he's just sort of oh, yeah. popping up around the world. Yeah. Isn't that uh, one of those dance moves? Yeah. No, it's, it's, the one, well, it's a craze all over the country. Yeah. Zuck spent the 4th of July in Alaska. He watched a Texas rodeo, was seen on the streets of New Orleans for Mardi Gras, and spent time chatting with college basketball players from Duke and North Carolina. He's trying to yeah, he's win trying, yeah. the, the fight there. <laughs> he's also made stops in Illinois, Minnesota, Iowa, and Nebraska. He says he's not running for office. He's just doing a Zuckerberg tour? He okay. takes on yearly challenges. He's learned Mandarin. He's done different things. He's learned rodeo. He wants to husbandry. Go to all thirty states. It's His father odd. was the uh, the jam manufacturer Zuckers, right? No, no. And but finally, when you eat too much Zuckers, you get a Zuckerberg. Oh, I get. Finally, like most brides, Marilyn Showman dreamed of her wedding day. It was finally happening. Everything was perfect, said Schumann, from the flowers to the cake to the gathering of loved ones, sharing the moment she Aww, tied the knot. Cute. But then looking out into the crowd, someone she didn't know. Oh. She was not a guest. I had no idea who she was. She approached me because I had been staring at her. She told me she was investigating the venue for her daughter, said Schumann. Oh, the wow. bride said the woman told others that she came to the reception to look for her husband. And it got worse. Schumann realized the woman stole more than just precious time. Uh, we assume that someone might have picked up all the gifts and cards from our table for us, but to her shock, most of the gifts were nowhere to be found. So they asked to look at a video taken during the reception. In the video, we can see that the woman Holy unidentified cow. leaves the building with a large black purse. 
Part of the reception memories, the guests were able to take a photo with a camera and write a note in a book. In the instant Polaroid guest book was a photo of the woman. Uh, it, and, the, and the bride says it's going to seal her fate. The woman also left a message in the guest registry. No way. It says, thanks for letting me share your special day. That message added insult to Schumann, who spent all day Sunday talking to investigators instead of oh, enjoying her weddings. And they feel that the woman uh, left with about $2,000 in gifts. You know, this is kind of and a, a free meal. And a free meal. This happens frequently. Chicken Does Did you know this? No, uh-uh. Yeah. You, they did one of those, I don't know if it was Nightline or Dateline or 2020. They're all the same. Um, but they did a, an in-depth story on this. Just right. all these different people that but, hop to different weddings and like take wedding things. crashers. Yeah. But these are now, wedding thieves. I have a brother and a cousin that will, at weddings, they'll do a photo bomb where they'll be in the photo even though they have no idea who any of the other people are. Just to be jerks. They're going to get arrested. (laughs) But they're not stealing presents. They're just stealing memories. Yeah. So those couples will forever look at that photo and wonder, who on earth is that? But then who gets your picture? Like, if I know I'm going to steal all of your presents, why would I put my face out there? Well, put your face out there, write your name in the guest book, or write a comment in the guest book, and then go talk Talk to to the the person you're stealing from. Wouldn't you just kind of hang around the fringe? Yeah, I think there's other issues going on here. Yeah. Maybe a little, little mental health issue, maybe. Or you know, mm. free gift cards. Yeah, or just yeah, desperate. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and they don't by, really want the cash inside. They just want the card. But think of how desperate you'd have to be to go to a wedding. I mean, it's hard enough for me to ever go to weddings. But to go, and those are people I know. Because you said you do like, what, two a week? Yeah, I have, we have a lot of weddings. Well, we get invited to like, a, like two a week, maybe. And I don't go to any of them. Really busy. Is that some sort of preemptive act by the couple? What? In case of trouble down the road, they have yeah. a safety. They net. always want like yeah. They always want a little marriage coach in they the can, back. They pocket. can come like slide right in and go. Hey, you came to our wedding. Well, that's what I'll I give it. as a gift is my book and my audio stuff. What well, I think you right, guys, no. I don't. Easy. I think you don't go because you are a known klepto and you're trying yeah. to fight this. Now people are watching me. Yeah. I can't get away with one present. I used to be able to get away with like two or three. I'd say I'm, to, I'm taking these to the car, and I never tell them what car I'm taking them to. Wait a minute. So that really nice fork that yeah. you gave me for my birthday? Yeah, that one fork. That was. Did you purchase that? Sure. I did. Yeah. Bad news for the Republican Party. What's that? I don't know if you heard this. They lost a headliner, Joe Scarborough. Yeah. He's out. He's no longer going. He's been out for a while. He, he hasn't been on board for quite a many while. Many people were like, he's a Republican? Yeah. But he is, he's leaving the Republican Party. He's going to become an independent. Granted, he has his own show, but he decided to do it on Stephen Colbert's show. Yeah, weird. Why would you not make the announcement on your show? I don't know. Bigger I, audience? Yeah, probably Colbert's probably got a bigger audience. Yeah. And Colbert, you know, is obviously an independent. Right. He's not biased in any no. way. Well, and he's the most politically charged or politically minded talk show host oh, yeah. at, you know, late night. He used to play a Republican and he did it so well that you knew he had to have been a Republican because he was just such a masterful Republican. Well, and he's very religious, very Christian. Yeah. We're losing him. Scarborough. Gone. Who's left? There's quite a few. <laughs> They're out there. <laughs> Oh, it's sad. What are you going to do? And by the way, Donald Trump, do you not find it ironic that Donald Trump 
is in France mm. on French Friday. Well, it's, he's there to celebrate Bastille Day. Right. That's what he says. You also know Donald Trump loves McDonald's. Right. And Kentucky Fried Chicken. And, and fast food. French fries. And it, it seems more like he likes the grease than the what brand it is. But if somebody says they don't like McDonald's French fries, they're lying. Yeah. Well, they're lying. It's sad. It's so sad. Jared, Jared Kushner's in Idaho with his wife. Yeah. A little Sun Valley action. Yeah. It's, I love Sun Valley. Which, I could, which, I could live in Sun Valley. Apparently he's drawing some criticism from the White House because, again, there's a crisis. And where's Jared? He's off on some trip somewhere. Well, a lot of the crises surrounding the White House are because of Jared. Well, I know. <laughs> and so maybe it's better that he's in Sun Valley. I mean, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to... Because there there was some uh, Russian allegations earlier in the year, and it's like, where's Jared? Oh, he's in Colorado skiing with his family. Right. That's odd. He's getting a Rocky Mountain high. The rest of us are getting beat up, and he's out there just away from it all, you know? I personally think if... If let's just say if President Trump would stay in Europe, okay, Kushner mm-hmm. goes to Colorado. Yep. If you could get all Trump juniors, Donald There's just one. Yeah, Donald and then the other guy. <laughs> His name's Eric. Eric. Did you see Stephen Colbert apologize to Eric? No. He goes, "We thought you were the dumb one. We're sorry." Oh boy, that was rude. <laughs> so now Donald Junior's in major trouble. Yeah. But if you could get the Trump juniors or, or, to stay or, out, or is he? I think if if Ivanka would stay there. Okay. Because she seems fairly popular. She says she's not involved. She doesn't no. like to be involved in politics. No, even though course. she's a special right. advisor. But if she would stay president. there, even Melania, if she would stay at the White House, uh-huh. I Which think she is you, now. you could turn this whole thing around. Really? Just yeah. if everyone Keep Donald in Europe. Wasn't here. <laughs> the rest of his staff, Darth Vader, what was his name? Bannon. Bannon. Uh-huh. Get him out. I mean, not out. I thought not he was. get rid of right. these people. Just get him on the road. I thought he was the Grim Reaper. Kellyanne Conway. Keep her off Alternative TV. facts. The time she spent off TV was one of their more productive times. Yeah. Now she's back on TV. Well, keep her actually doing more brand management for Ivanka's companies. There you go, yes. High heels. Yeah. Is it Ivana or Ivanka? Ivanka. Yeah. Is that? A, yeah. Is that the daughter? Yeah. Ivana's a former, it's yeah, an ex-wife. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'm just, I, I'm just giving my ideas. This is just my advice. It seems to work. As you clear, as you clear the decks... And the so great does that leave Reince Priebus running the house? Y- yeah, but a guy? lot of people are like, "Who? Who? They're trying to get is he hit. doing anything?" There's, there's word that there's like a growing uh, sentiment again to yeah. remove him from. The and then I think it's really cool what they're doing with Spicy, what are Sean they doing Spicer, just not letting him do briefings. And well, it's kind of like, the, hey, we don't know is Sean going to show up today to do the briefing or put Huckabee's, Huckabee, Romney, Huckabee, Huckabee's daughters up there, yeah. but they don't allow cameras and then it's audio embargoed till afterwards and yeah. then they talk about in the press conference it's how they're, exciting. they're being transparent. It's this never the silliest thing I've ever heard. It's never been this exciting. Do you, think is, the, do you think they get the, the conflict of talking about transparency and then not allowing cameras and no. audio in the meeting? Okay, I don't think they're just asking. It's a, it's a fun time, folks. And the neat thing that you're going to always know is that, you know, in 30 years, you're going to look back and say, no, I, I survived this. I went through this. And we'll get T-shirts. Like I mean, when you get off a roller coaster that says, I survived the Tower of Terror. Be, yeah. I was there when Trump served two terms as president and survived. I promise it'll be a strong moment like, hey, where were you when Elvis died? Kind of a thing. 
Everyone knows where they It'll were. Be one of those things. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. Hmm? He's not dead. Oh, you're still there. You're still thinking. Okay, no big deal. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking about uh, boredom and lessons and learnings about boredom. Interesting, interesting book. Yawn, Adventures in Boredom. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, do uh, do only boring people get bored? Do you remember as a teenager or even a, a even a younger child complaining that you're bored, Mom? I'm bored. And do you remember getting that big lecture from your parents? You can't be bored. You've got the best life in the world. There's a lot of pressure, a lot of guilt. I think a lot of just assumptions that we make about people that can get bored, and so we wanted to bring in. The uh, the expert, Mary Mann, and her book, Yawn Adventures in Boredom. And she studied boredom and is uh, is going to walk us through some of her lessons. And they're really profound life lessons about being bored. And we're honored to have you, Mary. Thank you for your time today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. This is such a fun uh, undertaking. Well, first of all, what drove you to so deeply explore the adventures in boredom? Uh, I started thinking about it um when I was in college, I was in a writing program for graduate school, and everyone was so worried about being boring in their, in their work. Right. Um, it's sort of baseline. Like, you don't want to offend people. You don't want to hurt people. But none of that, nobody will even notice those things if they're not reading it in the first place, if it's not interesting. So that was, like, the big concern, and I started to think about, what's this thing that's so scary? Um, why is being boring so scary? And that sort of then led me on to being bored and that also being scary or shameful. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of shame around it, isn't it? I guess, where do you sense that shame comes from? Uh, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, that I thought about a lot working on this book, and there's a couple different different places. A lot of it, like you, like you said, um, comes from childhood when we're told, you know, don't be bored. And some of that, I think, just from talking to parents, comes from just exasperated parents who are sometimes also bored and dealing with a lot of stuff. Um, and when they hear their kids complain, they're like, ah, I either, either maybe they worry that they're not doing a good job. Um, like they haven't raised kids with, with the abilities to think of stuff to do, or maybe that their kids aren't grateful enough for mm. things. Um, but most of the parents that I talked to, their main concerns were not their kids being bored, but their own feelings of boredom and their concerns that them being bored um, with their kids meant that they didn't love them enough. Oh, which wow. Is another, like, shameful thing. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, so when your child says they're bored, it almost vibrates your fears, your history, your ability as a parent— Oh boy, it really it kind of resonates deeply inside you. Yeah, there's a there's a lot uh, there's a lot of stuff that comes up for people with boredom. Isn't that it's weird? A, it's a feeling of failure sometimes. Yeah. Well, and and what is so? If you had to describe boredom, I mean, what is it? What is it? Is it is it a feeling? Is it emotional? What what is it? Or what isn't it? Yeah, it's, that's a great question. It's a feeling. Um, it's usually experienced as like an irritable restlessness. Um, so it's not, it's not the same as listlessness. 
you're not just lying there. You're you want to be you want to not be bored. Yeah, it motivates you. It's a motivating force because it motivates you not to want to be bored. And that's researchers who've studied this have actually found that motivation is sort of the one of the key things that separates the experience of boredom from the experience of depression, which it highly correlates with. Oh, interesting. So. Um, it, the big key to boredom is it's a driver. It's, 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 I guess it's a natural response that's supposed to motivate us. Yeah, that's definitely some, some people have, have posited that that's the reason why we feel it because it is kind of a thing like this is uncomfortable. Nobody likes it. Why do we have this feeling? Um, and some people have posited that it's because boredom helps us figure out what we want to be doing, what are, what feels purposeful to us. But it is tied, in a way, to depression. It is, yeah, it's correlated with it. There is a difference um, between sort of chronic boredom, when everything feels boring all the time, and momentary, like situational boredom. The chronic stuff is especially correlated to depression. Hmm. Um, situational is a sort of different kettle of fish. Yeah. But um, I guess in our in our process of this, I mean, if... If we, you know, it's probably important to look at boredom as a driver because then we can just ask the question, you know, what is it pushing me to? What is it telling me? Instead exactly. of instead of just trying to occupy it or you know dismiss it or get rid of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a that's certainly a good way to make it useful. Like, make it sort of work for you if you're going to feel it anyway. Right. If you're going to chase this dragon anyway, you may as well. <laughs> you may as well do it. So, but it, it's it's a natural, I guess, occurring thing. Um, what what are some other what are the what are some of the deep lessons you've learned about about its benefits, its and its and its problems? Yeah. Well, one of the one of the big things that I learned is that it's been around for forever. I think we tend to think of it as sort of a modern thing, um, maybe a maybe a privileged thing, mm-hmm. and it is to the degree that it does involve. Um, like, you have to have some, some amount of privilege to be able to complain about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, not to feel it, but to be able to complain about it and uh, be heard, certainly. But there was, there was a time before the word boredom existed in English and the word interesting. Um, and that was before the Industrial Revolution, before people had choices about what they were going to do for a livelihood or even, like, whether they were going to be – there was no social mobility – um, so at least in English, there was no word for it. Really? Um, but interestingly enough, there was this, this religious term, asadia. Hmm. And yeah. monks have been complaining about this since like the fourth century, this feeling of um, restlessness. And um, I, could, I could actually quote something that some monks wrote. Yeah, I do. Yeah, okay. Um, so there's there's this fourth century monk named Cassian who lived with these guys called the Desert Fathers, who were these monks that lived in the desert. Hence the name <laughs> sounds like a bad um, group, the Desert <laughs> Fathers. Yeah, it's a good band name. <laughs> That's cool. Um, but they they were trying to get as cut off as they could and and be as devoted as they could. And they their biggest challenge was this thing that they thought of as this invisible enemy, which. And that here's where the quote begins, which we may describe as tedium or perturbation of heart, inducing such lassitude of body and craving for food as one might feel after hard toil. Ooh. Finally, one gazes anxiously here and there 
and sighs that no brother of any description is to be seen approaching. One is forever in and out of one's cell, gazing at the sun as though it were tarrying to its setting. Mm. And it just reminds me of, um, like, if you're, if you're working an office job that you're not crazy about, and you're bored, and you're staring at the clock. Tedium, yeah. Gazing at the sun, it's a similar, it's a similar kind of thing. Boy, and... It's interesting that then we we as time progressed as we moved out I guess of the into the industrial revolution then this concept of boredom could we could find a word for it. And yeah. boredom yeah. was born. Boredom was born. <laughs> the word I guess it was already I guess apparently 5th century they were feeling it. Is it so is it culturally uh, it, it obviously is it's, I guess it's culturally impacting. I mean, if you were bored, I'm assuming a lot of problems can start from boredom. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's definitely, it's not a feeling that is either good or bad. It's kind of how you respond to it and how you're able to respond to it. So something that um, also is concurrent with boredom a lot is the feeling of being trapped. Mm. Um, and... There's there's a lot of um, like small crime, petty crimes committed out of boredom. Um, there's a there's a lot of drug use, a lot of drinking um, that happens out of boredom. Boredom has been um, found to be a cause of violence, especially in prisons when people have no outlet. Um, and there's actually a linguist. Claire Hardiger, who found that boredom was one of the chief motivations for online bullying as well. Oh, really? I've even heard boredom. Um, I've heard anxiety and boredom are two of the biggest drivers of kind of addictive porn use. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that amazing? It definitely is. Uh, so you're looking for some stimulation in your life. Yeah. Um, and people have done studies on that, actually. Boredom, boredom and, and sex is a big, a big research study topic. Yeah. And I, um, I guess that the idea of wanting uh, something new, something stimulating. Yeah, to, fee- to feel something other than boredom, really. Um, and I think that that's a big motivator for those things. When you're, when you're using it for something more productive, it's not so much to feel anything at all other than boredom, but it, there's a little more focus to it, which helps. Yeah. It's boy. It's it, you. You've you've apparently married. Touched on the big nerve. I mean, this is a huge. This is a huge driver. This is a huge part yeah. of our existence today. Yeah, I mean, it's not. It's certainly not just me either. There's there's. Um, I don't want to toot my own horn because there's yeah. so many researchers that I got so much information from. Um, it's really been something people have especially been researching in the last couple decades and. I think that's because we do have so much, so many more ways to distract ourselves now. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're finding, and in studies people are finding, that that's not making a difference. Like, people still get bored. And so now we're wondering, like, so what's the deal? Yeah. Well, maybe because we have this assumption it all this stuff would take us out of this boredom, and yet it might dig us deeper into it. Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly lowering our, our thresholds for it. Um, so I'm not sure if we're feeling it more or less than we did before. Not Probably not that much less. Um, but it's more like it's harder to handle. There's actually um, 
Bertrand Russell, I think it was, this philosopher in the early part of 20th century who lived through the invention of radio and television, mm. said that um, we're less bored than our ancestors are, but we're more afraid of boredom. And that might be more the problem. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah, yeah then what are you? You live in this incredibly advanced age where more choices, more technology, more entertainment, all of these things are at your hand and you're still bored? Yeah, absolutely. And there's actually, there was a study a couple of years ago, MTV did, that found that global, globally, teenagers still, 97% of them are often bored. And one of the most boring things, according to them, is mindlessly surfing the internet. Hmm. So it's... um. It's not doing that much to help us necessarily. Some cases it does. I mean, sometimes you find something funny or something that makes you think. So I don't want to. I don't want to put a kibosh on the internet by any means. No, right. I mean, it apparently it's here to stay, Mary. Yeah, it's not going away. <laughs> that's what I hear. <laughs> I mean, that's what Homer Simpson said. I think it's here to stay. Um, and then you wonder, um, but there's some deeper longing, it seems like, that this that we're really trying to be, or I guess we're driving, we want to be driven to. We want something deeper. Is that what it is? Yeah, something. It, that's what it seems like, certainly. Um, purpose, basically. Um, and that is, I think, thinking back to the monks, I think that's, that partly is why situational boredom can feel like a failure, especially if you're doing something that you do feel is purposeful. When you're feeling boredom in a moment, it can feel like all of that is no longer true. Um, and that's scary. It's a lot of pressure to put on a thing to totally. say that, like, if I love something, I'll never be bored with it. Right. I mean... But it almost seems like you need to love it and it needs to challenge you. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, there's definitely, there's, um, and I always butcher his name. Um, Chick Sent Me High? Yes, Chick Sent Me High. Yeah. Um, the thing about flow being sort of between, between something that's too easy and too hard. No, exactly. And so it's it's interesting, and boredom is maybe that's the the I don't know the little ticker, the driver that starts to push us to either elevate the difficulty of it or uh, you know adjust the adventure. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. It's kind of a cool. I mean, I I had never I don't know. It's so weird. I had never thought of boredom at all like this, Mary. I, I guess never this deeply. I just maybe I was always trying to avoid it, and I guess is that our tendency. We yeah, just want away that's from it. Super normal, and and it's um, not just being bored, but also like the, the fear of being boring is a really common adult fear. So we just generally don't want to think about boredom at all because it's all of those aspects of it are scary. Yeah, it, it, it is. We don't want to be the kid that that nobody notices. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although there's a funny there's a funny quote from actually Queen Elizabeth's party planner. Who <laughs> um, says that she? What she does is she seats all the boars together because they don't realize they're the boars and they're happy. <laughs> so, so maybe if you, that think, is if you're so worried great. about being boring, you're not boring. That is I such a. But honestly, and you can almost imagine that table. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is a messed up table, but nobody knows it, and they're all nobody totally content. They're happy. That's great. That is such a, that's a great quote. By the way, when you're quoting Queen Elizabeth's party planner, 
You know you've done your research, Mary. <laughs> that is some very good research. Let's take a break. We'll come back and continue this discussion. More with Mary Mann and her book, Yawn Adventures in Boredom. Adventures in Boredom. What a great, uh, what a great undertaking. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends. We are talking with Mary Mann. She is a writer uh, and researcher. Her work has appeared in the Smithsonian, the New York Times, The Believer, Outside Magazine. She also works as a private researcher and as a writing associate at the Cooper Union um, and is the recipient of the Rana Jaffe uh, uh, Foundation Fellowship and the associate editor of the New York Times bestselling collection, Women in Clothes. She's got it all, plus the book out now, Yawn, Adventures in Boredom. And uh, Mary, thanks for making this not boring. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. So interesting. So uh, such an interesting topic. I think we are, we're learning a lot. Talk about, um, I mean, one of the things that I, I read in one of the articles about your work was the idea of how bored we, we and how we associate boredom with long-term kind of monogamous marriages. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and how it it actually be, it's like this burden that everyone's afraid of the marriage becoming so boring, and yet the paradox of we want our marriages incredibly predictable and safe, which would think you know would seem a little boring. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it was definitely one of the biggest topics of research that I found was. Um, People, researchers trying to figure out what's the deal, why, why, why do relationships get stagnant? Why does, why do these feelings start happening? Did, did they, did they have insights? Is it, I mean, and I, it seems like, I guess you just, just, you got to do fun things. What, what's the answer yeah. to not being bored in a relationship? Um, well, I think it depends on the relationship. It's definitely about, um, like you said, sort of acknowledging that you you probably don't know this person the way as much as you think you do. Hmm. Um, and we want to feel like we do. We like that stability, that comfort, but it also comes at the price of, um, yeah, a little bit of boredom. So maybe just being more willing to see the mystery in your partner, I guess, is a cheesy way of putting it. Um, a lot of studies found some slightly more depressing stuff, which is yeah. <laughs> like things like um, um, jealousy, uh, um, drama, um, fighting, that kind of stuff keeps... Keeps it alive. Like, yeah, sexual stuff going. Um, and that's that seems like a not super healthy way to deal with no. it. No. I mean, more drama to stay physically connected. I mean, that yeah. seems like... Yeah, I mean, it explains ugh. a lot of yeah. TV shows and stuff. And uh, I see it. I see it. I have clients that we, we do this all the time, and some people can recover from a really good fight and go be intimate and connect, and and yet others, it almost is like the fight is what brings the emotion. And so, so yeah. boredom, because boredom is so deeply tied to emotional engagement, too, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
So if um, you're fighting, you're less bored and there is emotion. It's just not this connection. Do you find that those people are say the words bored like I'm bored? No. Um, no. They, what they, 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 they usually just have a complaint, not that they're bored, that their partner is boring or their partner mm. isn't interesting. Yeah. Or they've lost that loving feel. They've like they've lost that magic energy. Yeah, magic and spark are like yeah. two big words yeah. that we use when we're feeling a little bit of tedium. Isn't that interesting? Is there do you see a, a correlation then between I mean that that's just the marriage relationship, but I guess you could have similar parallels at work. You could have similar yeah. parallels just in your career movement. Yeah, um absolutely. There's there's, oh gosh, there's so much to talk about with that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure where to start. Is what? it well? Is it about purpose? Is that what we lack? Is and when we're bored, is it is it that we just need to kind of reset our view, our paradigm? Yeah, sometimes there's the, so the purpose thing is a big thing, and that is why a lot of some researchers. I'm not going to say a lot of, but some of them. That's that is the reason that they think that we feel boredom. I would say, I would caution, like, against assuming that every time you feel bored, it's because what you're doing lacks purpose and mm. shouldn't do it anymore, because that might mean, like, you know, abandoning your kid. Yeah, sorry. Your, you know, there's certain things. Right, got to go, guys. Got to leave you guys now. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's also just, like, momentary stuff. Sometimes it just happens. Sometimes life just does get a little boring. And one thing that's useful i think is to know is to be aware and this is true in relationships at work and parenting to be aware that the boredom comes from the situation not the person necessarily mm. so you can use it instead as a motivating force to to liven up things with that person to help each other through this yeah. i think other other people are probably our best our best um I don't know, partners in crime to sort of fight boredom, like talking to other people, being with other people, asking questions. Yeah, um, definitely helps. Well, you 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 brought it up, too, in one of your interviews that, you know, when you're coming home every day and you're watching Netflix together, it's not yeah. like it's not interesting, but over time it could become boring. Yeah. And I then mean, it's, it's super common to experience that and call it a rut i would right. say I yeah mostly and then but you might even blame oh yeah my partner's so boring because all he wants to do is watch netflix but you know sometimes we just my family we just last night went up into the mountains to snowbird ski resort and had a fun time and all of a sudden and no one was on their device we didn't even watch any netflix it was weird and then <laughs> but all of a sudden it wasn't boring it was just engaging yeah. and That's and nice. we reconnected to purpose again that's really nice. I mean, it does it does make us mix things up a little bit. Um, and we have, people have done and made so many cool things just out of that desire to mix things up a little bit. Yeah. Oh, okay. um, There's like actually this, this anthropologist, Ralph Linton, who says that um, he thinks, oh gosh, what is that exact quote from him? Because it's nice. Um, he thinks that... It seems probable that the human capacity for boredom, rather than man's social or natural needs, lies at the root of man's cultural advance. Hmm. 
which is a big thing to say. It's huge. But it's interesting when you think about what culture is and the ways that we use it, consume it, make it. I mean, movies, plays, books, all these things we wouldn't really need if we didn't need to... To stretch. To change things up. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's interesting. So it, and it, that, then it creates this incredible world, and everybody, it seems like, that are out on that cutting edge of stretching themselves, they might seem eccentric at a time. They might seem, you know, like they're abandoning other things, but their their need to not be bored is creating a, a different world. Yeah, it can definitely it can be useful. I got a chance to interview um, several artists, um, uh, visual artists, actress, that, that all that kind of stuff, and they all talked about boredom as being sort of part of their process. Hmm. Like, I, I guess that's it, too, is you're because it's it's an emotion. You're yeah. connecting to this emotion. And I guess that's your point earlier is pay attention to what that feeling is. Don't just avoid it, but like embrace it. Yeah, absolutely. And I would I would like to say, too, like you don't have to be an artist for this. No. to be Useful. Um, one fun, fun thing that I came across was this tradition of tobacco readers. Have you heard about this? No, uh-uh. So there's these, um, there's like 250 of them still left. These people in Cuba who their job is to read to people rolling cigars in the factories. Oh, they just um, read them books? They read them books. And it was, it huh. started before radio. So that, that, yeah, that makes sense. what makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, have they not heard of books on tape? Yeah. <laughs> um, and it spread to a lot of places and sort of, yeah, went away once radio started, but, um, in Cuba, they still do it because it's been such a tradition. Yeah. And the cool thing, one of the many cool things about that is that um, it has been going on for so long that the work, I'm going to try to say this in a way that makes sense, the things that they're being read are finding their way into the work that, they're, that the tobacco rollers are doing um, in fun ways that then we see in culture. So... The big example of that is, like, one of the favorite books that they were read was Account of Monte Cristo. Oh, wow, yeah. And that's why we oh. have the cigars called the Monte Cristo. Monte Cristos. Because they lobbied to name it after one of their favorite characters. How cool is that story? And they're all, you can imagine the excitement and the adventure of the Monte Cristo. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Isn't that amazing? And, and so these tobacco readers... That that creates, a, I guess, a passion and leaves the alleviates the boredom of the the tobacco roller. Absolutely, because it is it's a it's a tedious and repetitive job, but yeah. it's also one that requires a lot of concentration. So you can't chat. Hmm. So to be read to was sort of like the big solution. Yeah. Wow. Is that so? What Mary? After all of this, what uh, advice do you give all of us to? I guess to to understand our boredom, not just evade it. And what? Where do we go? How do we improve upon it? Take it yeah. somewhere. Um, I do. I I'm cautious about giving advice, um, just because I do think it's such a different experience for different people, and different things um, spark people. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so one of the people I interviewed was an accountant who told me that. He loves doing tax forms. It's like when he's the least bored in life. <laughs> he just whips through them, and it's wonderful. It's so to be able to pay attention to how you're feeling in the moment and um, 
what what does that for you? What feels what engages you in that way? And then what doesn't? I yeah, like you said, is really really useful and smart. And not to be scared or feel bad about boredom because we all have it. Right. And event, I mean even the idea that if it's leading to depression that that could be telling you we could go work on the depression or deal with the depression. Absolutely. And then that even becomes almost a passion, right? Like you're starting to, you're starting to unfold you. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way of putting it. I actually talked to Andrew Solomon who um, has written extensively about depression. He wrote a great book about it. Um, And he was telling me that boredom for him is like one of the things that when he notices that he's bored with everything, that's when he goes and talks to his therapist about, hmm. like, you know, is this medicine working? He goes and starts working out more. It's his, it's his like, um, almost alarm system. Yeah, it's his barometer or something. That's pretty yeah. powerful. Well, Mary, we, we love it. We appreciate your insight. Thank you for taking your questions and going deeper and, and researching and writing this book. The book, again, is Yawn, Adventures in Boredom. And uh, not, you're not going to be bored <laughs> reading that one. Powerful stuff. And, man, just learning about even the tobacco uh, readers in Cuba. How interesting is that? We'll take a break, my friends. Helping you uh, be the good in the world by understanding your emotions a little bit better. We'll be back. I walked through the streets and I realized that I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back. Uh, so do you feel bored? And is it is it bored that is your problem or the fear that you're bored? And so when we're afraid that we are bored or boring, um, either bored because we're not doing anything interesting or that we are boring, which means others might not see us as interesting, what do you do with that feeling? I guess one of the big keys, and there's a great quote by Nathaniel Brandon about this, the first step toward change is awareness. So we probably ought to be more aware of what we're feeling, whether we're bored or are we afraid of boring, being boring? Do we have some compelling, driven, unexplored assumption in our head that says you shouldn't be boring or you're going to amount to nothing? And then once we can become aware of that, the second step is to accept it. You're bored. You've got you've got this state of, uh, you know, you you really literally, as she put it, are irritably restless now. And that might make it so you don't love your job. You're struggling with your family. You wonder why you married the person you married. Maybe some of these things aren't telling you to just ditch all of these people or get rid of the job. Maybe boredom is simply saying it's time to make some adjustments that either make the game more exciting and interesting, or maybe you need to take some things in a different direction, or just get better at what you have been avoiding. Powerful insights about each of us as human beings. We can either become aware and or not, and we can either accept it or not. Interesting stuff. Helping you be the good in the world. That's the goal of the show. We'll be back. Continue with us. Stick with us. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. 
Welcome back, friends. Happy Thursday to you. Hope it's going well. Hope you're taking it on and uh, not just running away from it. Come on. We got a great show for you today. Boy, by the way, celebrating French Friday. This is all my favorite day. I think this may very well be my favorite day of the year. Even more, I like it more than Donut Day. Who doesn't? You can hear uh, Jeff and his family singing at McDonald's. He's kind of the vibrating voice in the back. This is after we uh, inhaled some helium from a balloon. <laughs> Apparently. Oh, yeah. Not going to dip them in ranch. Ketchup for sure. Or if you live in the Intermountain area, you can go with fry sauce. Or Canada gravy. Or in Canada, gravy. I've never had gravy on fries. Mm. Is Utah still claiming they created fry sauce? Yeah, they did. Yes. They're not claiming it. You're saying they're the first people to mix mayonnaise and ketchup together. Well, I'm pretty sure that was Adam and Eve. (laughs) Yeah. So they're probably the second and third people. They made their own French fries, too. Yeah, they did. Great potatoes growing in the garden. Um, We have got a wonderful show today. We will be talking about a challenge that our team has yet to struggle with. Uh, this is so rude. How you deal with a high-performance team member. Again, rude. Why is that rude? Because you're, you're basically pointing to everyone you work with and saying you're not high-performing. No, none of – I'm saying myself too. None of us on the team are high-performers. Again, rude. Well, we're, we're easily moderate performers. Okay. I'm not saying I'll give that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but I mean, it's all it's all subjective, right? Because if you're with a moderate performer, but that moderate performer really seems to perform beautifully moderately, right? We might think that they are excelling. Now, this idea is that the the management goes out but searches for the best talent. You find the best you can find. You bring them in. You bring them in, and you put them with other people in the office. And that person, because they're supposed to be this MVP high yeah. performer, they're resented. They're resented, and and especially if they are a high performer, everybody then starts to try to sabotage them. Right. And yet we also want this high performer to work well with these people. So the high performer is caught in this conundrum. Do I work well with others or do I just go make it happen on my own? It's the same feeling I have when you're with your cable company or your cell phone provider for like five, six years, but some new person shows up and they get the great deal. I know. I resent that person. Can you hear me now? So just to be clear, we are the talent that you were talking about in that scenario, right? Wrong. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Donald Trump. Uh, So – But that that is difficult. It's a big deal. Yeah. And then how do you – because you bring in the top performer – and usually they burn out. If, you're, if everyone's going to be gunning for them, trying to sabotage their career, they may as well just leave. So they tend to be disengaged and then they run. Hmm. You might want to watch out. What? I think there are a number of people gunning for you. Really? Palakiko being one of them. Yeah. He's kind of the ringleader. He actually did gun me. Wow. I mean. It's quite the accusation. That's Not- why he's going to Costa Rica. It's kind of a uh, planning mission. I know. Isn't that weird? He always brings in some distraction. He does news reports on a different station here in the building. Mm-hmm. And he was criticized by certain people because some of his reporting sounded like he was accusing people of high crimes. <laughs> Just, you know, language, that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff. So That's it. We well, do know that we'll he, is, he is slowly but surely getting all of the books out of the building. 
Maybe yeah. he's going to start his own show. I think he wants his own show. Racking up all these guests. Some people say um, spring cleaning. No. Spring uh, screen cleaning. There you go. Yeah. You're a monster. Screen cleaning is that you're gunning for me with your screen cleaning show. I don't know that I would want to do 15 hours of movie programming per week. Why? So I think you're safe. Okay, good. Good. By the way, Friday is when Jeff, at the third hour tomorrow, Jeff will be uh, doing his screen cleaning show. I'm all for it because I'll be celebrating French Friday for two days. It's going to be a great day. We will be talking about then how you deal with these high performers. Uh, also, we will be talking about uh, some interesting stories about bears again. Bears are back in the news. Apparently, Alaskans are more worried about bears than North Korea sending a missile their way. Hmm. And I would well, too. Well, they, they have the THAAD system. Yeah, THAAD. What a great guy THAAD was. Yeah. Um, they also, he was one of the Osmonds too, yeah, right? THAAD, yeah. Osmond, and I think – I think that's actually Tito's original name was Thad, Thaddeus. Well. Yeah. Thaddeus things you learn. Jackson. Um, so we'll be talking about a Colorado Springs woman who finds a surprise in her garage. And, boy, a, quite a downer for a, a man I, um, that parked his BMW in Hawaii and then went on a trip. When he came back, you won't believe what had happened to his BMW. Hmm. This is why he didn't buy a BMW. Or this is why you never go to Hawaii anymore, too. That's right. Or leave my car in long-term parking. Lots of reasons. Lots of stuff we'll be covering. We'll get to all of that, plus other crazy headlines you didn't even know you needed to know. But first, let's get to Terry South and the headlines. What's up, Terry? House House Majority Whip Steve Scalise, previously wounded in a shooting at a baseball practice nearly a month ago, has been removed out of intensive care. Good. uh, In a Washington hospital, remains in serious condition, though. The Louisiana congressman and third-ranking House Republican underwent surgery last week and is being treated for infection. He left the hospital and had to return because of And then infection. was put in the intensive care again? I did yeah. not know he left. Okay. A committee of Harvard faculty, staff, and students this week called for the end of the university's exclusive organizations, including fraternities, sororities, and the secretive elite final clubs. The latter, in particular, has been lambasted as products of their time. The committee report said due to their resistance to change over the decades, they have lapsed into products behind their time. The school does not officially recognize the Greek organizations or the final clubs, and so the panel suggested eliminating them by simply punishing students who participate in them. Just time after time, the social organizations have demonstrated behavior inconsistent with an inclusive campus culture, a disregard for the personhood and safety of fellow students, and an unwillingness to change even as new students join them over generations. They're going to wow. give them the paddle, so they're going to haze the hazers. Ooh. So it's Sounds not bad. There, there was a group at Yale called the Skull and Bones. Yeah. It's not them. That's at Yale, but it's groups like that. Well, that president, a with. lot of presidents were in that group. The Skull and Bones at Yale, yeah. yes. So they want to get rid of that because, you know, it causes problems when you have, you know, secret societies and stuff. Well, like, do you remember when we taped Jeff to his chair? Yeah, that was fun. That first day? Yeah. That was fun. I don't, I mean, to me, I thought it brought us closer together. Generally, hazing is bad. Yeah, we don't, we, that, but that wasn't hazing, that was taping. Unless you put the word good-natured in front of it, then it's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just the, the secret handshake that you can't do. Yeah, you can't do that. Yeah. In other news, a security researcher says a lapse has exposed data from millions of Verizon customers leaking names, addresses, and personal identification numbers, or 
pens, as the article says. Mm-hmm. Uh, Verizon Wireless said 6 million customers were affected, but the company says that none of the information made it into the wrong hands. The company says the only person who got access to the data was the researcher who brought the leak to its attention. Oh. Oh. Hmm. So I don't know what you do with that. I mean, no. It's concerning that it's available and open, but right? only to the one guy who found it. Yeah. How weird is that? So is it a security breach? Or, mm. I don't know. Uh, By the way, it is when they announce it and then put it in the newspaper. I know. Moon dust collected by Neil Armstrong during the first lunar landing is being sold at a New York auction. The lunar dust plus some tiny rocks that Armstrong also collected are zipped up in a small bag and are worth an estimated 2 to $4 million. Holy cow. It'll be auctioned to Sotheby's, so if you want to fly out there and get on that, Dr. Matt Townsend. Wow. And finally, this is, I don't know if this is a public service or if it's just, you know, Food for thought, but uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott recently signed a bill into law effectively removing restrictions on the use and possession of several types of knives and other edged weapons. Okay. HB 1935 replaces the term illegal knife with location restricted knife. What? And specific laws regarding punishment for the use of firearms or clubbing weapons. Okay. So you can conceal carry knives. And you won't get arrested in certain situations. Well, unless you're not supposed to have that knife in that restricted area. Yeah. Or that constricted, what word was, what was the word? Uh, re- location restricted knife. Yeah. yeah. So it says the types of edged weapons that are no longer restricted. Okay. For uh, concealed, just carry. Uh, a knife with a blade over five and one half inches. Okay. Right? No so longer restricted. You can carry that anywhere. Survival knives. Big, yeah. long, uh-huh. you know, serrated edges. A hand instrument designed to cut or stab another by being thrown. Throwing okay. knives. A throwing knife. Ninja a, stars. A ninja star, yeah, something like that. Uh, a dagger. Okay, yeah. Right, right. Uh, a bowie knife. Wow. Right. Um, a sword. Mm-hmm. You can carry your katana if you have one around. <laughs> um, or a spear if you want to carry a long spear. These yeah. are all now something you can carry on your person. Wouldn't that... Do- <laughs> Speaking of knives. Yeah. According to the Houston Press, the law removes restrictions on possessing such weapons, carrying them into public, or selling them to underage buyers. Well, yeah, you don't want to, yeah, you don't want to sell your spear to like some kid and Re- the, that doesn't know how to use it. No, it says it removes restrictions. You can? On selling to underage buyers. Timmy, where did you get your sword? <laughs> I bought it on the corner, Mom. It says uh, HB 1935 still restricts users from carrying these weapons onto college campuses, nursing homes, sporting events, and establishments that sell alcohol. The law also prohibits school-aged children from carrying these types of weapons on school grounds or during school activities. Because that's restricted. So the knife open carry law goes into effect September 1st. Holy cow. Just word of warning, I guess. I don't know. I understand a knife, but swords? Oh, let me ask you this. Broad swords? Seriously. Uh, What about Ginsu knives? That would they be, slice, they dice, they, they cut, cut through, through a na- penny. They mm-hmm. cut through nails. That would be a knife with a blade over five and one half inches. Ah, oh, good. Because I just bought a set. <laughs> so you can carry your Ginsu with you. Can what I if- give my old shoes to you? Why? So you can just cut, cut them right up and dispose yeah, yeah. of them? You cut through cut old right shoes through or a nice, delicious tomato. What about the, the door-to-door knife salesmen? So th- this has got to be a boon for them. They're going right. to be rolling in it now in Texas. Right. There's more uses for that butcher knife, not mm-hmm. just for you know culinary arts, but Jeez. personal protection. This is exciting. I, you know what? I'm, I can hardly wait to get home and cut through a can. But yeah, so it's been so forever. The law removes restrictions on possessing weapons, carrying them in public, 
or selling them to underage buyers. It removes wow. the restrictions to sell them to underage buyers, which is good because, you know, every kid needs a Well, let me just tell sword. you because I'm a – I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm a doctor. And I have a doctorate in systems theory, basically. Oh, uh-huh. And what this will tell us is that the, the death by gun in Texas will go down. Really? Yeah, death by knife will go up, but go death up. by gun is definitely going to be dropping. What I want to know is there's a, a it's a thing it's called a ceremonial Klingon batleth. Is this is a, a Star Trek reference? Holy yes, cow. it's a double edged spinning sort of uh-huh. battle weapon that yeah. they use. Yeah, you can carry those now. Why do you know that? I watched Star Trek: The Next Generation. Nerd alert! Why did you remember that? It's really a, it's a very imposing sort of weapon that you can use. And apparently you can just walk around the streets. Well, yeah, now. Well, on September 1st. Well, now. Don't want to jump the gun there. You you know soon there will be Dallas Cowboy versions of it. Oh, probably already are. With branded Dallas Cowboy, Houston. Fidget spinners. People are weaponizing fidget spinners, too. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) Not only do you fidget, but you um, also, you know, harm people. I think the first fidget spinner weapon was in Goldfinger. Where Odd Job removes his hat and tosses oh, it like yeah. a frisbee. Yeah, but that was—I think that was more apparel, dangerous apparel. Yeah, well, not so much fidget spinner. It's apparel peril. Yeah, it's appalling peril. Uh, check this story out. Speaking of appalling, uh, or yeah, uh, a, a woman in Colorado Springs walks into her garage. You know, you'd think you'd see your car, maybe the lawnmower, maybe some fertilizer, whatever you have in there. But this woman got the experience of a lifetime when she pulled into her garage on Tuesday, and uh, you won't believe what was going on. In a video she provided to Colorado Parks and Wildlife, the woman is heard telling the freaking bear to get out of her garage, especially when it walked toward the refrigerator. She also said... What might possibly be the best excuse to ever get out of a situation? Um, I can't go because there is a bear behind me. That's a great point. Oh, I mean, yeah, how yeah. do you pull out? I mean, you got a bear behind you. So she's honking. She's trying to get the bear to run uh, out of her driveway, I guess. And it's all caught on her backup camera, hmm. which notifies her that there's a hazard behind her car. Which was a bear. Happens to be a bear. Which was one blocking her way and very hazardous. Yeah. yeah. The bear was caught on camera stealing ice cream and M&Ms from a garage in the same neighborhood. He's got good taste. It's right. a party bear, for heaven's sakes. It's just a party bear. It's not a big deal. Bears love M&Ms. And do you remember the theme of M&Ms? M&Ms make friends. Really? Uh-huh. I thought it was the melt in your mouth, not in your hand. That's another one. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's probably back in my day was M&M's make friends. Hmm. So quit honking and just get out of your car, hug a bear. And, you know, now there is a, a YouTube video that's just exploding after this news story came really? out. Oh, really? What's yeah. it about? I just got like a minute of it right here. Hold on. Walking, walking and rolling. Out to my car, I'm strolling But the big bear's blocking my car Not fun, I said big bear mm, Stop it now Everyone told me just to go in reverse 
Said Big Bear's bound to move Nudge him in the coconut But he didn't But he didn't Have me going like Yeah 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 Nothing I could do but wait When this Big Bear blocked me When I tried to yell it seems That Big Bear was laughing And then Bear made his way to my refrigerator Stealing my ice cream I just wait, wait, wait and yawn Watching him chomp on my bonbons Eat, 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 eat And stop, stop it now Businesses face a dilemma in their hunt for talent every day. They pursue usually the best and the brightest, right? Who can outsell, outthink, outproduce their peers. And, uh, you know, then all of a sudden you bring in this supercharged high performer and out of nowhere, everybody starts pushing against them. They start to uh, sabotage. The, the rest of the team may sabotage out of jealousy or other reasons these uh, these high performers. So, how do you bring in super talent and uh, and integrate them into teams where not everybody produces equally? Everybody might bring something different, but not everybody produces everything equally. How do we take advantage and, and leverage this talent? And how do we how do we get everybody to play together? Joining us to talk about that is Dr. Elizabeth Campbell. She wrote a wonderful article in the Harvard Business Review about this topic. When one person's high performance creates resentment in your team, and uh, she teaches management and leadership development at the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Talk about, I mean. It's it's interesting. If anybody's ever been on a team with a really super high performer, a lot of what we're talking about here, it's real. There's there's this fear that might set in, and, and it might have us treating that person in a different way. Absolutely, and that's what um, the, the main finding of the study was. And I think that this is actually a pretty common phenomenon, right? I think when we, we say star performer, we think of, of top performers, and we think of like star athletes and super successful business women, men and women, but high performers are really kind of not rare individuals, right? right? Because performance is relative and it's, it's, you know, I'm a terrible basketball player. Um, so I'm a low performer in that domain, but I'm a great trivia player, right? So it's really just relative to whatever context you're in. And I think most people have experienced a high performer. And frankly, I think a lot of people have been that high performer themselves. Mm, so true. And you, you then bring up kind of the, I think the perfect explanation of it is the Japanese proverb that uh, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. Um, and I, so I guess it's human nature to want to beat down the top performer? Oh, human nature? I don't know. I, I guess I'd try to think that we've evolved past that. I think the research suggests, my research and research of others suggest that it's, it's a couple of things. So one, um, you know, we know that we compare ourselves to other people. It's just a very unfortunate and natural occurrence in our environment. We we tend to be motivated to compare ourselves upward, right? And that can trigger a bunch of different things. So there's this kind of automatic reaction, this envious feeling of inferiority, like that hot reaction. Um, and then, unfortunately, what we found in our research is that it's actually almost a little bit more sinister, right? Mm. So there's your re- emotional response. Um, but even beyond that, uh, peers appraise high performers as threatening 
and sometimes mistreat them strategically. Real, so they're intentionally sabotaging. Yeah, intentionally sabotaging when they see people as a threat to, you know, supervisor's attention or that next promotion or that great new project that they've been eyeing. Hmm. Boy, that's that is a that is more sinister, isn't it? Is it? Um, so, I mean, I guess it's one thing for everybody to kind of have that emotion, that feeling, that fear, that insecurity. It's another to take it to the next level of actually acting on it and and sabotaging. Is it? I guess then it's, it becomes overt acts of sabotage. Right. Exactly. So interesting. Not not work that I've done, but um, work in, that other organizational psychologists suggest that low performers receive like more overt. Um, sabotage, you know, people swear at them, this very kind of visible victimization. But high performers, it's a little bit more like the long con, right? Mm. You're like, you like belittle them behind their back, or you kind of make a snide comment to them, or you isolate them from day-to-day gossip, or even elements of like the work progress. Interesting. Yeah, they might exclude you from data information or flow and keep you out of certain loops. Yeah, but but it's kind of like we'll bring you down over time. Exactly. And you can almost see it um, if you've ever been in a situation with these high performers where the boss hires them, they come in and tout all their accolades or whatever, and then in the back of your head you're like, okay, well, we'll see over time. But over time, uh, is it is it generally one or two people, or is it do the do they then bring in uh, do these actors that are kind of fighting against the top performer? Do they tend to build a coalition? Oh, that's interesting. I, you know, I could speculate on that, but I don't know of any evidence that would suggest it's a, a coalition. Um, I don't know if it's that formal, right? It's yeah. more like this kind of day to day, like like death by a thousand paper cuts, right? Mm. Where I mean, it's it's formalizing a coalition against a high performer might actually backfire. Right. Um, we know that you know if, if that could be cast as like upward hostility or working against somebody that's higher status, which we know people can sometimes be socially penalized for themselves. So I think this is a little bit more um, kind of sneaky and uh, quietly trying to sabotage the work of and the reputation of a high performer. Does it ever get to a point where, um, because you could see that a high performer at first, you know, is a brilliant hire for a manager, but then as the high performer continues to excel and work their way up the company, it might even become a threat to the manager. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, It's a question after my own heart. So I actually have done some subsequent studies, and we found that, indeed, this phenomena it expands to supervisors. So the literature has suggested, evidence and research studies have suggested that uh, supervisors are typically more likely to abuse lower performers, right? That's generally been um, what the evidence supports. More recently, I I looked at, it's actually both. So it's, it's, in nerd speak, what we call a curvilinear effect. It looks like a U, right? Where uh, supervisors are likely to abuse both low performers and high performers um, compared to the average performing counterparts, right? And you can see it. It's like a threat argument, right? So it's like low performers threaten our ability to get our work done. Mm, high true. performance can be, can be a status threat to us. Well, because then everybody's saying, why aren't you all doing what they're doing? Exactly. And then, 
And then we start, uh, and we might even not even mean to do it at first, but as a manager, you start holding them up. You start taking their best practices. You start giving them roles as teaching and training, um, which I guess in every case lowers the hierarchy of the average performer. Right. Well, and I think that's interesting what you note, that like we tend to like give a lot of attention to these individuals even before they come into the organization, right? We know we spend so much money, we spend so much leadership time trying to get high performers into our organization and then give them all these opportunities when they're in our organization. And that's great, uh, except that it invites, you know, highlighting them, highlighting their high performance, really making them seem like a standout, even though essentially you're trying to embed them within a team where they can work together, enable each other, you know, proverbially sing kumbaya and mm-hmm. really be interdependent because we know our workforces are more and more interdependent, right? Right. That, that you're actually exacerbating the problem for high performers by giving them all that extra attention. And again, it's uh, I guess some would say it's a zero-sum game in this competitive world where if they're getting the attention, then others aren't. And a lot of times you can always try to compensate like – but when you get the text or the email from management that highlights the incredible work of, of the high performer – um, and then at the very end, they throw in the little caveat, oh, and by the way, we, we appreciate all the work that all of you all are doing. Right. Keep up like the great work. Comment. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, you know. So in a, in a way, I guess it, it actually probably creates disengagement on both sides of the issue, right? So the high performer that's being sabotaged probably feels uh, you know, a tendency to be disengaged. Why do I want to play with these people if they're all going to fight against me? And then the low performers tend to feel disengaged because we always talk about the high performer. Absolutely. So we know that over time, if you're socially undermined, if people are sabotaging you, your motivation suffers, but also your performance suffers, right? You're not getting the same information that you might need to do to do your job. So absolutely, the high performer can't maintain their high level of performance. Mm. And then similarly, the low performers even more disengaged, right? They think that they can't a- achieve this level, right? It's it's this kind of almost painful social, social comparison because of how often we identify ourselves with our work. So pride. Yeah. I, um, I, I, I teach a principle that uh, states that high performance fosters independence of action. So it seems like the better the performer you are, the more freedom you have in a way to to kind of set your own rules, to make your own reality. Um, and I guess even that freedom might be something that everyone's jealous of. Oh, no, certainly. I think we need to think about resources broadly. I mean, it, uh, high performance really gains you a lot, not just rewards within an organization. There's so many intangibles that are going to motivate how people interact with you. Hmm. Do you, I guess, as, as you think about it and the research you're seeing, is this, you brought up that this is a common problem, um, but what, what actually is the impact on the high performer? Do they leave? Do they, do they, do they just stick it out? How, how long? Do they tend to leave faster if they're a higher performer? How does that work? Well, we do know that high performers um, are more likely that the, the turnover rates for high performers is, tends to be elevated, and this is across industry phenomena. And so, interestingly enough, in a past life, when I was a, a consultant, um, I would be working with organizations that were trying to get high performers into the door and develop them, and they were really frustrated that they would leave all the time. 
Um, and they, but they were so focused on like the supply side of the equation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that they were like, where are they? How do we get them? I think the problem is, is that uh, you know, once they're there, we don't pay attention enough to all of these social issues, right? So they, they also um, reason that you know they have more opportunities to go places. That's why we lose them. We lose them to our competitors. They can go elsewhere because they are so talented. I think it's probably part of that, but I think another, um, the, you know, the data suggested an, another point of rationale is that, like, it's, it's actually just because they're not embedding socially well within these organizations, right? They're having a, a more difficult time, and I think we need to kind of talk about that because b- building awareness about this issue can inform how managers coach them and how high performers interact with their peers. Maybe they need to be more proactive in certain ways. And maybe is there something about high performers that maybe is antisocial or anti-cultural where it's maybe they foster, maybe they tend to foster a more independent paradigm than interdependent. Well, I th- so I think that that can be true, right? We know that like people like think of the Elon Musks of the world, right? right. It's like very, yeah. very the demanding. The renegade, yeah. Exactly. Very demanding, dominant people. They, ca- they care about quality. They hold themselves to high standards and they hold other people to high standards, right? And in fact, that's why we did, um, we did our field study, right, to show this effect. We also did a lab study because we wanted to isolate, is it really just performance that's affecting mm. how high performers are treated? And, you know, controlling for everything else, can we just change level of performance and see how peers tr- mistreat or, you know, treat them well or treat them poorly? And, and in the end, you found... It, regardless, they, they're treated differently. Yeah, they are treated differently. Now, I will say this, though. Um, that's, we're kind of talking about one side of this coin that we found, which is that they're more likely to be socially undermined, mm-hmm. more likely to be insulted, belittled, criticized. We also found that uh, they're more likely to be socially supported by the same peer, right? So they're, they're like people are willing to um, kind of interact with them, tell them that they're going to offer them assistance, give them attention from peers. So we thought this was, a, you know, I'm hmm. like, okay, well, maybe it's a balanced story. Um, but actually, you know what? That's worse. Um, research from uh, Michelle Duffy and, and even research in, like, clinical psychology would suggest that if you are both kind of negatively treated and positively be tr- treated by the same person, that actually creates more tension, more uncertainty. It's like a more difficult relationship to manage, right? Yeah. Love and hate coexist. I'm sure you know this is yeah, like totally. really challenging. So then, yeah, it's almost, you don't know what to believe. Like they seem so nice, but it's more, I guess it's more passive aggressive. They're in front of you, they're nice and back and behind you, they're, you know, sharpening the knife. No, totally. And, and then, of course, those relationships that are both positive and negative, we can't just, like, relegate them. Like, it's not always, that guy's a jerk. I'm just not going to interact with him. If it's both positive and negative, we can't just discount that. So we have that person in our midst all the time. Oh, interesting stuff. Let's take a break. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Campbell about uh, when one person's high performance creates resentment in your team and how to handle it, how to, how to work your way through it. Uh, these high performers come at a cost. They, it takes a lot to get them to be on your team, to keep them on your team. They tend to leave a little earlier, and there's major complexity in uh, just the, the social relationships that go on on the team. So we'll continue this journey. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
Welcome back, my friends. Today we are talking with Dr. Elizabeth Campbell from the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. And we are talking about when one person's high performance creates resentment on your team. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Campbell, thank you again for being with us. Thank you. Is in your research and your experience is um, I guess in a way is it is it disincentivizing then to be a high performer? Overall, is it a is it a harder thing? Is is it maybe what might lead many to you know just get back to the average? Well, I think that's a possibility, right? Like I think that um, we do know that if you're a high performer and you're experiencing, a, you should anticipate a, a slightly more difficult social road. And I think awareness of that is can be empowering, right? Because oftentimes this is like a very isolating experience. You know, why are why are people picking on me? Why is this happening? So if you know that this is actually not about you, this is just an, a phenomenon that happens in organizations and um, that can kind of help you I don't know, cope with it or even preempt it if you're at least aware that this isn't you, this is what happens when mm. you're a high performer. What um, overall, what, what is the cost of this? Because I'm assuming you have to pay more to get these people there. And then if they end up leaving earlier, that's got to be a, a, an expense. What other expenses, what else, what else is this costing? Well, I'm, it's, I'm sure that if you have a turnover problem when uh, where high performers are exiting, that this could probably explain part of of that loss, right? So, from from an HR perspective, I'm sure that this is costing organizations a lot. Um, this also might be costing in terms of um, like loafing within organizations. We know that when people are experience just nasty treatment at work, that they are less motivated. When they see uh, you know dysfunctional behavior at work, it's kind of toxic for the environment. So just from a a productivity perspective, I'm sure it's costing organizations. And it also actually might be costing high performers or people who witness um, antisocial behavior in the workplace to be, you know, there's like health problems associated with being abused, mistreated, criticized at work, which is pretty frightening. What advice do you give managers? I mean, you've been in every level of kind of consulting as well as now academia. What what advice do you tell managers who have these uh, star performers? Well, I think that uh, you know leaders obviously want to bring high performers into their team. I'm not suggesting that we should just try to pursue average performers. Right. right? We want we still want talent. I'm not saying that um, people should strive toward mediocrity or people should recruit for mediocrity. Right. right? Go for um, the average. Think, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. But I think the sto- when you bring in a high performer, the story needs to kind of start there, not finish there. You can't recruit a standout, embed them in a team, and kind of let them on their on their way. There needs to be coaching, right? There needs to be coaching of that performer on specific ways that they can interact with the team that might minimize that. We can talk about that if you like. And then there's also, um, you know, it probably speaks to the value of more intentional and uh, proactive team development efforts, right? So you can start building those social bonds mm. in advance of people starting to see this person really as a high performer rather than as their friend who also is a high performer. Yeah. I mean, I guess it is different. And two, I mean, there's just the dynamics of bringing someone into the team anyway that's an outsider, let alone if they're a top performer um, and all of the other history. But the idea of being a friend and a performer is is maybe a better – it's a better um, story. I mean, I, I, I hope so. I mean, a lot of – for high performers, a lot of 
you know, whether or not they're undermined has a lot to do with how you like interact with your coworkers, right? Right. Uh, it's it's there's a, a few things that I typically recommend to my high performing friends uh, or colleagues who might be specifically at risk for this, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, one of those things that we know from the research is that you can make sure that the team knows that you're in it for them too, right? This is not about yourself. This is, you're not just trying to pull out ahead of the group, that you care about the team, you're motivated to help the group because we know that team players are not only viewed as less of a threat, but also even if I consider you a threat, I'm less likely to lash out against you or Hmm. sabotage you because I see you as a, a team player. I see that my fate is woven with yours. That's a great idea. Is it? Uh, does it? Would it help to give them a, um, a a state of hierarchy, a position, a managerial role? And because it seems like my if if I was over the team or I was a team leader brought in because of my experience, that might even the playing field. Oh no, that's interesting, right? So that might remove the a social comparison I make. Yeah, right. right? Yeah, because you were not parallel anymore. Right, exactly. I think that 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 might um, mitigate some of it. Um, interestingly enough, and you know, I, I throw this out there, but we just shouldn't go down this tangent. But I've actually looked at some new data that suggests that high-performing supervisors are also more abusive of their subordinates. Oh, I bet you can totally tell. For another day, sure. Yeah, that's a whole other discussion. So um, we we might put them into a management position if it's possible, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. But back to your point, it probably means you've got to coach them a lot on integrating socially. And make sure that we're convincing the team that we're we will all be benefiting collectively from this experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and there are also like some other tactics that are more anecdote, right? We know that a little self-deprecation works, right? Like, right. Why not? Do, I mean, do do good work. Um, take your work seriously, but don't take yourself so seriously, mm-hmm. right? If we can downplay some of our successes, um, I always think of this quote from a, a professor in grad school. She always said. Remain when you succeed. Remain humble. It will delight your friends and confuse your enemies. It's so, so good. I think that I think that high performers could probably benefit in taking that to heart a little bit. And what about is there a way to get um, them teaching or sharing their best practices that that might put them in a different role as well, where they might even feel a sense of responsibility to share the insight. Yeah, I, I would hope so. I would hope they would get that. I probably wouldn't lead with that, though. So um, studies suggest you don't kind of want to go out there and, and prove yourself, especially if you're susceptible to being undermined like this by your peers. It might be better, actually, first for you to, like, ask for advice from others, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Be good at asking questions, listen, make sure that your peers, you know, people want to feel valuable, right? They want to feel useful. So if high performers can go out of their way to talk, about how other people have enabled them or seek advice first before giving advice. Um, I think that's probably the right kind of order of operations in order to prevent them from further kind of kicking up feelings of threat and envy, right? Yeah. Is there is there something that I guess organizations should be doing? I mean, maybe this is what you're talking about, at getting better at social integration, communication, listening skills, coaching. I mean, it seems like an or- this is a major organizational issue because – you could very easily create an organization where we really just want average because average <laughs> seems to not rock the boat. 
No, I know. My mom, my, my mom's like, oh my gosh, Beth, really? All of your research is essentially saying that we should just all be average. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. But you can see that. an organization institutionalizing it just because it's easy. Yeah, but easy isn't always is right. very, very rarely great, right? Um, well, I think that first, if you can, I mean, change, we know a, a first piece of change is always if you can kind of measure it or at least understand the extent to which this is a problem within your organization, right? If you can capture some, some um, picture of the social dynamics within your company um, and make sure that you, you, if there's pockets of this, that this isn't why high performers are leaving, that's one piece. And then I think it's not only coaching, having managers coach their subordinates, but I think coaching managers to be better feedback seekers and feedback providers to high performers, right? Yeah. Uh, you got to nip the problem in the bud. That's right. And, and I guess, so it really is, it, it, everybody has a role to play here from the organizational leaders, but the, the direct kind of managers, and I guess most importantly, high performers. If you are a high performer, um, be careful. Absolutely. Because you, otherwise you, you may just, you may not have any clue what you're biting off. Excellent stuff. Well, Dr. Elizabeth Campbell, we appreciate your great work and uh, that wonderful article in Harvard Business Review. Again, Dr. Elizabeth Campbell, you can find out more about her at, uh, if you just look at Google, Dr. Elizabeth Campbell, Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. Awesome stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Come back and continue the journey uh, right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, folks. Hey, uh, as we like to do on the show, we want to we just want to make life easier for you. Give you a chance to get the latest, the greatest research and information that you need to know. Um, uh, the other day on the show, we were talking about Honda um, Accords being the number one car that car thieves are after. Yes. Remember that? And you also said Camry. Camry. And I have a Toyota Camry. You have a Toyota Solara. Camry, so it could have easily been you. But uh, my, interestingly, my car, n- nobody wants. Including you. <laughs> so strange. So, so strange. Anyway, apparently it's getting a lot harder to steal a Honda Accord or a Honda Civic. In 2016, more than um, – uh, well, let's do it this way. In 1997, 7,500 Honda Civics um, were being stolen and Accords were being stolen every year. 7,500. Sheesh. So guess as of 20, in 2016, guess how many Honda Accords were stolen last year? So mm. 7,500 in 97. Okay. So that would be – it's getting more difficult to steal them, you It's say. harder to steal a Honda Accord. Okay. I'm going to say 7,200. Oh, very far away from the accurate number. <laughs> the accurate number is 493. <laughs> In 2016, only 493 uh, Honda Accords were stolen. So that's great progress. We didn't want to scare anybody thinking that, uh, you know, if you buy a Honda Accord, you're you're going to end up without a car. But I mean, yeah, okay, okay. They're making them more difficult to steal. Yeah. I mean, 
yeah, now you got to get in and you got to get through the electric doors. You got to then the, even the keys nowadays. If you've noticed, if you lose your key fob, it's going to cost you about a million dollars. Oh yeah, because there's so much security now. Your key matches your your uh, your what's it called the column where your ignition switch is. It's so it's hard to steal now. That's good news, right? That's the good news. Now, you can also, just so you know, you at any time, go buy a BMW, right? Beautiful cars. I'm sure people want to steal those too. But if you happen to park it at the airport in Hawaii, you better be careful because a man um, did such a thing with his BMW, a beautiful luxury vehicle, and he left it there in long-term parking. And uh, when he got back to his car, the car was infested with cockroaches. I know. All he did was park it for a few days under a tree at Kona International Airport. The TV station there, KITV, reports that after pulling into his driveway, Blake saw something crawling out from underneath the car hood. Howell told the station that after doing a battle with the bugs and killing so many that he had to hose down his driveway, he still can't claim a victory. He's finding the little cockroaches, uh, corpses in his driveway to this day. He joked with somebody that if they actually had been in the interior, I probably would have had to set the thing on fire. So you buy a car. It doesn't matter what it is. If you poke, if you park it, if you poke it, if you park that car at the airport, be careful. You may end up picking up a family of cockroaches. La Cucaracha. By the way, now that would be a great car. A great car horn, too. Oh, it would be. Yeah. Darn it. Wish we had it. Oh, well. Anyway, which, uh, by the way, this explains a lot of Kiko, right? Kiko, I think, used to get paid in Hawaii to go in to go put cockroaches into cars. I think that's why he's so jittery, because he yeah. may seem to have cockroaches on his person at all times. He's got the uh, la cucaracha. It's the dance of the cockroach. He loves it. Okay, folks, uh, watch out. It's not the car you buy. It might just be where you park it. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Hour number three of the program. Hope you are uh, at it and uh, enjoying life, right? Learning, taking in what you can, making the best of the difficult times. And as we talked about last hour, if you have a Honda, have a Honda Civic or an Accord, relax. Or a it's, Camry. It's not going anywhere. Or a Camry. It's a Camry. Camry and Civics. But apparently they're safer than we think. Okay. They used to be – they're still probably what people want to steal, but fewer and fewer cars are stolen because technology is so advancing. Right. Now, like, uh, boy, I found out I, – I had a friend buy a really expensive Porsche, then drove it in first gear for miles and ruined the engine. Ooh. But he couldn't hear the engine over the music he was playing. You know, I've got a different take on this. What? So I've got that Toyota Camry Solara. Mm-hmm. And people know that Toyotas and Hondas are just great cars, last forever. So really, if my car is stolen, 
Shouldn't I be flattered? Yeah. Yeah, you should. I mean, if, yeah. So anybody out there that's listening that is in need of a, a red Solara Camry currently parked at the BYU Broadcasting Building, <laughs> please take it. Help yourself. <laughs> it's just – it's nice to know yeah. that people admire the things that I have, right? Is oh, that, yeah. That's, that's healthy, right? Probably not. If we're going to shoot straight. Or they're just walking through a parking lot lifting handles and like, oh, it's open. Hey, this one's open. <laughs> and we talked yesterday about the guy that just went, you know, door shopping. He just opened every car door he could and anything that was open, he could take something out of it. Dog treats. Dog treats, Tic Tacs. CDs, DVDs. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. a, it's a good living. Today, by the way, we'll be talking about how to return to a routine with your kids because they're, they're off for summer, spending a lot of time. Yesterday, I spent a lot of time with my kids. It was awesome. It's fun to just see them as they're growing up, you know, going through the experiences of life. But eventually you got to send them back to school. So Heather Johnson will be joining us to talk about how to return to routine, how to make a smooth transition. Maybe there's some, some habits you want to start implementing so that they're ready to go when school starts in a month or so. I you can't believe cold, cold turkey is the best way to go? No. Oh, I love go, cold turkey. You go from doing nothing to all of a sudden you're in school and you're yeah, no, I having think to perform. It's like you almost need to get them back into the routines. Mm. Like sometimes there were times where I used to wonder if my kids would brush their teeth. Right. Because you know? it's like I haven't seen you for three days. I have a son that's down here at a little conference at BYU and he's been away for four days and I don't know what he's doing. It's scary. I'm sure he's showering. There are girls that take part in this conference, too. Well, true, but there's also Axe body spray. Right. The great cover-upper. And, you know, you could just shellac your body with Axe. That's why it's called shellax. Gross. And the next thing you know, sure, he's hermetically sealed, yes. (laughs) And he has a... This major smell of chemicals. Mountain mist. Mm. <laughs> anyway, we'll teach you how to get your kids back on track um, in just a minute. Plus, of course, we'll be taking on a, a, a bunch of empty news stories. For example, what would be the strangest thing that you could imagine walking down your street? Don Shaline? That would be odd. That would be. Don Shaline, you mean our boss? Yeah, if he's walking down my street and like, um, you're out of place. He comes and knocks at your door. <laughs> Excuse Hello. me. <laughs> I'm looking for Jeffrey Simpson. No, what about like an elephant? Yeah. What if all of a sudden like, you're just out there pulling out in your Solara and the next thing you know, this elephant's walking down? That the, would be awesome. The Sri Lankan Navy yesterday. Yeah. Caught a elephant. It was like eight miles, eight nautical miles out in the ocean. They what? saved it and brought it back. There's video. He's just this oh, elephant's boy. head's popping out just barely. No, I bet. Oh, that's sad. Well, yeah, no, but they went out and they, sa- they saved the elephant and brought it back into shore. But it was just out there swimming in the water, you know. <laughs> that is tragic. Yeah. How do you get him out of the water? I think they, they lassoed kind of around the neck and yeah. then kind of gave, gave it some tugs and oh, it that turned around helps. and yanked now, it back into shore. That would be even more weird of a sight to see a cowboy sitting on an elephant riding it. That would be weird. Yeah. Sweet. Or that elephant yelling, hit it, and then the boat 
And then and he's he water skiing. skiing. Yeah. That would be cool. <laughs> With his trunk just flapping in the air. How cool would that be? Wow. So we'll talk about uh, an elephant uh, strolling through Wisconsin neighborhood and a Florida man tired of walking. Tired. You just get tired. It, it happens. So he just borrows he just borrows a ride. Again. Again. I get tired of sitting, so I will I tend to steal running shoes. Really? Yeah. That's this weird. Florida guy's a repeat offender. Well, I, at the same offense. Well, it's a I obviously it's a habit. We covered the story the last time. <laughs> this is crazy. He can't get enough. No, no. Okay, it's... we're going to tell you later in the show what this guy keeps stealing. But it's barefoot. I mean, he's barefoot when he does it. Right. So that's it. I mean, he's got reasons. You don't want like pebbles to No cut your fees so right. just grab one so we'll get to that fun plus of course byu sports nation we'll check in with them find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour and of course do our hero of the day all of that straight ahead oh here he first comes. and foremost he heard it we're going to get to the headlines with terry south terry what's up two americans were killed in battle in syria while fighting isis militants the men 28 year old robert garot and 29 year old nicholas allen warden were part of the kurdish people's protection units a u.s backed militia also known as the ypg garot and warden were fighting in raqqa the terror group's capital and longtime strong so two men who under their own accord went over there honda Accord? to fight Oh, really? These aren't military. They're just on their own. I'm going there and, wow. They're fighting with the Kurdish uh, armies there, and they they died. So, Uh, New York City has announced a $32 million multi-agency plan to reduce the rat population, which is estimated to number roughly 2 million, and has included the likes of, well, Pizza Rat, if you remember that online. Pizza Rat. Uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio said Wednesday the plan will target rats in several areas in the Bronx and Brooklyn, Chinatown, the East Village, and the Lower East Side of Manhattan. The goal is up to a 70% drop in the rat population in those areas. Proposed legislation would regulate the hours garbage could be left at the curb and increase fines for illegal dumping. You it, dirty rat. It doesn't take much to sustain a rat, apparently. The report says that they issued with this uh, proposal. A rat can survive on an ounce of food a day. So any trash at the curb would sustain however many rats. It's crazy. But it it seems like it's a bigger issue than people just leaving their their garbage out. But that's a big part of it because they can get to the garbage. It also has to do with trash cans and, you know, they're being better... Ways to dispose of waste just on the street because the rats it. can get to yeah, it, yeah. and also trash compactors and stuff in mm. buildings. A bunch of different regulations and things they're trying that's, to do to fix the problem because it's pretty bad. That stinks. Uh, robots are being counted on to speed up security at Seattle Tacoma Airport. Really? Uh, during the, the test week, the robots provided tips for getting through security. Through audible instructions in English, the robot can also be programmed to speak six different languages and adjust based on the language being spoken by approaching travelers. The robot is heard to say, hello, my name is Tracy. Please follow my instructions so the line moves quickly and you don't sell off, uh, you don't set off the body scan alarms. The robot uh, then takes the passengers and instructs them to take off their shoes, jackets, empty their pockets, remove their belts, prepare for a body scan before going through screening. So yeah. it's just an automated system. Do you so. see any problem with this? Uh, this yes, because they're twenty to thirty thousand dollars a piece, and and what happens when you didn't understand the robot? That's right. And the next thing you know, you have somebody taking their pants off in so, front of you. So does this mean that we now prefer robots over the TSA personnel? Probably. No, that's a no-brainer. I love my TSA personnel. 
It did say that at the Seattle airport in 2017, 97% of passengers made it through security in fewer than 20 minutes. Even so, the airport is trying to streamline the process. Hopefully this works. Good on you. You keep trying to do that. That's great. Um, Also, earlier this week, I don't know if you saw this story, Teddy Fisher, a sophomore from Mercer Island High School, uh, I believe in Washington State, called up Secretary of Defense James Mattis for an interview with his high school newspaper. No, I didn't see this. Uh, Mattis, his contact information was accidentally leaked by the Washington Post. Oh, boy. They, of course, apologized. But this kid saw this. So he goes, huh, I'm going to call the Secretary of Defense. I'll just call Mattis. So he called and uh, left a message, and Mattis called him back. Machine gun Mattis here. Called him back, and they talked about (laughs) uh, how the different um, administrations have handled the Middle East, foreign diplomacy, defeating ISIS, gaining trust of Arab nations, uh, the Syrian conflict, problems with war, Trump budget, and the characterization really? of other I – mean, just all these different ranging topics that the Secretary of Defense just talked to the high school student about. What a nice guy. What a great guy. He yeah. then immediately went and changed his phone <laughs> his number. His phone number. <laughs> and finally, a man in Scotland was very appalled by a fellow Twitter user's choice of snack. What? So he decided to report it to the police. Oh, boy. What was his snack? So the, the snack that someone put out was a – Chocolate and cheese toast. It's like they 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 make you know toast. You have yeah, some toast. Everybody likes toast. They took it looks like a Nutella type product mm. and then melted cheddar cheese on top of it. Hmm. <coughs> yeah, all right, Jeff, you okay, bud? Hey, so oh, uh, Jack Young, yeah, from uh, Scotland, felt so strongly about the novel toasty, as it says. <laughs> they call it a toasty. He tweeted it to the police in a bid to report the as he called it a criminal creation. Criminal creation. Other users called it a perversion, while others said it was 100% a criminal def- or criminal offense. The Scotland police have yet to respond to the tweet, so it's unclear whether any crimes have actually been committed. But it, mm. it more comes to your personal preference. Do you like the idea of – does the idea of chocolate on toast with melted cheese – Well, chocolate – well, probably like not to a, a the certain palate. I mean we think of it as like – Spray cheese, yeah. cheap chocolate, but right. I'm sure you could pair a nice chocolate with a nice cheese. It looks like Nutella and maybe some <laughs> like sliced cheese you unwrap for yeah. your sandwich, yeah. which might be kind of plasticky. Yeah. Oh, but plasticky. Don't yeah. don't talk about it like it's negative. I didn't mention any names, so I think we're safe. <laughs> Boy, that's. I didn't think it'd get you in that much trouble, though. I, it was reported. I don't know if the police take it seriously, but yeah. it might be depending on if you're offended by that. Right. It might just, be a, a crime. Relax. Relax. It's just chocolate and cheese. And, you know, that's what happens when you run out of Pop-Tarts. Yes. You make your own. And who knows? That will probably be a Pop-Tart flavor in the future. Cheesy chocolate. Cheesy chocolate. Oh. I don't know. We'll see. So let's say um, you're you're just maybe driving down the street. You're just maybe driving uh, down the street. Yeah. So let's not do it that way. Um, let's uh, one day suppose <laughs> one day uh, you're walking down the street in a small Wisconsin neighborhood, and all of a sudden a full grown elephant saunters up next to you. Oh, that's nice. He sauntered. The the cute little elephant just went for a brief little walk. You could have said stampeded. Not yet. You said sauntered. He just it's sauntered. Nice. Yeah. Uh, but apparently the problem is law enforcement's quickly got in touch with nearby Circus World Museum. Oh. And the museum 
had apparently lost their pachyderm. Whoops. I mean, how many times have we lost a pachyderm? Always misplaced the pachyderm. Such an embarrassing moment. A trainer arrived and led the elephant back to the circus complex. Circus World, by the way. Nice name. Great name. I mean, I was. It, it yeah. doesn't. It doesn't leave anything to mystery as to what it is. No, it's a circus. World. It's a circus world. Yeah. Uh, the spokesperson for the organization says the elephant named Kelly was freed by her pachyderm partner uh, Isla, oh. who used her trunk to disengage a restraint. Whoa! Isla set her free, and huh. Kelly head for the. She was heading for the hills, because you know pachyderms love. Going up to the mountains. Oh, yeah. Get away. And into the water, too, apparently. Oh, apparently. They love a good swim. Yeah, so it keeps them fit. Uh, Kelly lumbered across a shallow river, swimming. So to speak. Wandered into the neighboring backyard, uh, where she then unlatched a gate and munched on some marigolds during uh, uh, during her couple of hours of freedom. That is one adventurous... So ice, I man, marigold. They make some good ice cream products. No, I think these are actual flowers, marigolds. Oh, I see. Great eating, and they have a really nice uh, marigold hotel somewhere in India. It's the second best, isn't it? I think it's the second best. Yeah, yeah. First best is different. So uh, you think you had a weird day with you know seeing some stray dog in your neighborhood? Who do you call when you've got a pachyderm running around? You call the packing. Catcher, we call Circus World. Wouldn't they I have the most expertise? You would think. Okay. Except I just call Animal Control, and then just for a laugh, I'd love to see them bring their little their little ring that they try to put around a dog's neck and right. see them try to catch Kelly. You know what I would do? Uh, I would call him a cab because he needs a ride home. So I'd get him a taxidermist. Okay. Taxidermist for the pachyderm. The, the, the thing's still alive. You're not going to want to stuff Kelly. Cute little Kelly. Just went for a swim. Went for a little walk. Had a few marigolds. Then went back to Isla and they had a great laugh. That's the neat thing about elephants. They're smarter than we are. We will take a break. When we come back, we will teach you how to get your kids to return to a routine. Just like getting Kelly back in her cage. Stick with us. Welcome back. You know, uh, kids, about a month away, they've got to get back to school. And most of us would just probably procrastinate, not think about it, not worry about it, just keep letting them live the party life until all of a sudden, the night before school, boom, you, you realize these kids are not in any routine. So Heather Johnson's joining us today. She is one of our great contributors and is uh, walking us through how to get our kids to return to routine, how to make a smooth transition back to school. You can go to uh, Heather's website. You can find her at uh, Pen and Paper Girl on Twitter or go to her website, uh, familyvolley.com, where you can get all of her latest and greatest writings and information. Heather, thanks for being with us. Oh, it's good to be here. Thanks. So your kids go back to school in about a month. we got a month left. That's it. Are they dreading it? Have they no. said anything yet? Do they know? Oh, yeah, they know. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, we we love summer. We love the ease of it. It's the best. We love the lack of, you know, structure that that's okay during mm-hmm. the summertime. I mean, we still have some structure around, 
you know, sleeping and meals a little bit, but it's really relaxing. It's great Ugh. to just as a family be able to enjoy summer. Just to kick back and not have to worry about everything. Yeah. And and it's hard to think that it's coming close. I know even the topic, you know, you listen and it's like, what in the world? Why are we – we just talked about getting into summer. Why right. are we talking about going back to school? But to be prepared to get back into a routine, we really do as parents have to think about it a little bit in advance. It, it does take some time to get our kids back where we want them to be so that school's really comfortable for them. So true. Do – um. I guess it's not necessarily easy, right? I mean, it's it, it's it's easy to get off of track. It's probably right. not easy to get back on track. <laughs> right. It's a lot easier to dump your routine than it is to pick it back up. Yeah. And that transition's hard. And so there's a couple things we can do that will really make the transition back to school and also help our summer end on a really positive note yeah, instead cool. of that abrupt this really stinks. Party's over. It's exactly right. Like yeah. you said, that's that's it. The party's over. And so the first thing that we have to think about is recognizing that our kids are going to have a lot of feelings when it comes to what the end of summer looks like. We're very quick to not allow our kids to feel. Right. And that's just not – it's not just for summer. This is in their life in general. How many times is it, don't be sad? Why are you upset? Stop crying. Be happy. You know, we're constantly telling them to kind of go, this is, these are the emotions I have. Dismiss them. Right. Change them. True. So when it comes to this, we need to allow them to feel. It's lousy when summer ends. It is. Horrible. I'm, I'm annoyed. Yeah. I like it's summer like, too. It's like you've, you know, you your parole has yeah. been pulled. <laughs> and so it's really funny that we would think, okay, we know those feelings. Why all of a sudden are we looking at our kids and saying, hey, be happy. Aren't you excited to go back and see your friends? You're going to love it. Don't be sad. It's a, So we need to allow them to feel those things. Instead of trying to change their mind, look at them and say, I know this is hard. We love summer. Validate the fact that they feel that way. Put your arms around them and let them feel what they want to feel. It's right. okay. It's right. okay to think, man, I sure wish summer was longer because I it's so wish true. summer was longer too. And yeah. that's okay. So, so we, validate it. Accept the feeling. I mean, yeah, you don't have to say, well, tough. I mean, it is what it is. Just, or just let them express it. Let them express it. And we're quick to say, well, you've had two and a half months or yeah. you knew this was coming. Right. right. Well, we all know it's coming. I know the laundry's coming today. It doesn't mean I want to do it That's more right. or I'm right. happier about right. it. So it's okay to just let them feel. Let them be upset. It's it's a bummer. It is a bummer. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. And they'll start to see as we allow them to feel those things. Once they ease into school, then they'll start to realize, okay, this is where I'm at and there's good things here too. Awesome. But don't dismiss how your kids feel. And that's on we all do it, And we do it all the time, don't we? It's just it's, – it's almost like we don't know – we don't know what to do with the emotion. We don't. Like we feel like we have to fix it or, or it's bad if they're having it. Right. And stop it. And and it tells them actually just one single message and that's I, I don't care. I don't care that you're sad. Get to school anyways. I don't right. care that you're upset. Right. Give your sister the book instead of, yeah, that's lousy. He hit you. That's unfortunate, so right? true. I don't want to get hit either. And so we really want to allow those feelings. And that's in every aspect of their life. The other thing is we're so quick once summer ends to jump back into a full schedule immediately. Oh, yeah. And this is one of the worst things we can do to our kids to all of a sudden, the first day of school is also the first day of piano, the first day of soccer, the first day of voice, the first... Holy moly. Here we go. The poor yeah. kids. You know, we've taken them from this much more relaxed, get to make more choices on their own to a very structured environment every day where now they have expectations that are different. And on top of that, we're going to pack all the activities and start them at the exact same time. Right. If you want your kids to have a smooth transition, let school just be school for at least a couple weeks. And then if you want to introduce piano, bring one thing in at a time with an ease yeah. so that they get to work back in to the pressure and to the expectations and to the rigor that comes from 
them being back in school and back being in that environment. That's great. Just the slow drip. It's exactly right. Instead of, you know, everything at once. And again, a lot happens to us in our families if we'll start to put ourselves in our kids' positions. You know, I I don't want everything to hit me at once. Right. You know, those weeks right. when it all is on one day all the time and it's like, this is miserable. Well, imagine that as a kid when they don't have as many experiences to draw in in order to manage it and handle it and work yeah. through it. And so it's not so much that they might dread school. It's that they're struggling with the fact that they've got everything all at once. It seems like what you're saying, too, is like because my the piano people are going to tell me I need to start here and then the sports are going to have this deadline. Everything's got a deadline, but you probably need to – you need to own it, like plan it. Make this a plan, not just something we have to react to. Right. It's exactly right. And that's why you start a month out. That's why you think about it before it hits you. Yeah. And remember, we've got such great research now that shows us kids really only need one, maybe two extracurricular activities at a time. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that we need school plus six other things, we're just way over the top. We've right. forgotten that our children's primary responsibility when they're children is to play. And even our teenagers, you know, we've got an 80-20 where 80% of their life – Plus, at 16 and older, can be structured. But 20% still needs to be play. It, yeah. It needs Creativity, to be relaxed yeah. and, and choosing for themselves. So don't hit them with everything at once. Piano is amazing. Soccer is fantastic. Voice is positive and good. Mm-hmm. Just don't bring it all at the same time. <laughs> so Ease into true. it, right? Ease into it. Ease That's into good it. advice. What else? And another one that goes right along with this is we tend at the end of summer to put or throw in that last-minute vacation. And we throw it in and we coordinate it so that we get home 24 hours before they have to show up at a desk on the first day of school. (laughs) We got to stop doing that. It really hurts our kids. If we think of it from our perspective, when we get home from a vacation as adults, the last thing we want to do the next day or even the next day is get up and tend to the laundry and go back to work and mow the lawn that's been neglected and clean it. It's so much and it's overwhelming. And now we've brought our kids and they're tired and they've had a great time and they're excited, but everything's running high. And then we say, hey, you got to get in bed because school starts tomorrow. Here you go. Here we go. Right. And never have we given them an opportunity just like we need to take to sit back and go, okay, let's have a couple days to recover from this so that we can actually be mentally and physically ready to go back to school. That's great advice. So if if there is that that plan for a trip, great. But give yourself, I always like to say, kind of 10 days before you go back to school, come home with 10 days left so that you can make sure we've gotten some sleep, that meals are more regular, that everything's unpacked, things are back in order, and yeah. everything's stable again. It's almost like, and get the room, like I, we always used to clean your room, get everything organized. It's exactly right. Be ready to run. And that's right along with us. Our environment needs to be, you know, not chaotic. It needs its structure back too. And so where we tend to lapse on some of those things, and rightly so, that's what summer's about. You know, when we come back from vacations, it is, it's chaotic for a week. It's, it's a lot of stuff going on everywhere. So don't plan them back to back. Give your kids some space, just like adults need to come back. Relax for, you know, a couple of days and get back into things. I love that. Lay off that a little bit. Well, and again, it's – we don't think about it. It's almost like we've got to cram as much as we can into the fun time. Right. 
but you're really setting them up to fail if you don't do it right. We are. And then we get those negative emotions, right? You know, I just think I can even think of an example in our home. We just recently had a lot of people, a lot of family in town. So we weren't on vacation, but we kind of were with everyone there. And our kids are up later because their cousins around and all this is going on. And everybody family leaves on Sunday and Monday morning, it's back to swim team. Mm -hmm. And I can see our daughter as I went in for seven o'clock, wake up to eat breakfast and get to swim by eight. And she looked at me and the tears are right on the surface. And it's like, I'm exhausted. I don't. And I don't want to go back to like, I love swim, but I am so tired. And it's that same feeling with school. It's like we got to give them some space so that they can process and they can work through it. And it's our fault if we don't. That's what's hard to digest. It's like, well, I wanted to plan a fun trip for you. Well, that's great. Plan it two weeks earlier. Just just a little earlier. Work with them a little bit. And especially if you're going to make the decision to go to swim team, then make it easier for them by – Maybe pulling back on the social life for a bit, or it's exactly Sunday, right. you know, Sun or Saturday night, we're done. We're not going to be with family Sunday. We just can't. We've yeah. got to. And you start looking at the bedtimes again, and you start looking at those things again, so that it's not so harmful to yeah. them when all of a sudden there's expectations. Because at the same time, it's our responsibility too to recognize you committed to this, mm-hmm. so you got to understand there's consequences. But but we're not looking to make it hurt so right. bad. <laughs> well, and these are life skills, right? right. They will be using these. Planning skills forever. And so why not help them manage it, understand it now? It's so true. Because how amazing to think that they then raise families where they take a step back and go, what would this feel like to my five-year-old? What would that look like to our eight-year-old if – Eight hours later, she has to be in a classroom. Mm. What would that be like? And so now we're we're kind of breeding these skills that they need for generations instead yeah. of just short term. Isn't that weird? We create – we hate it as adults that we have this kind of chaotic life and yet we are creating that chaotic – planning life for our children. That's exactly right. And then we complain all the way around because they're not behaving the way we want them to, but yet we're the ones that have created the stress to make them behave in ways Mm -hmm. we don't like. Well, and we didn't even pick up this life until we were adults. They're picking it up at seven. Right. It's exactly right. And they probably won't even be an Olympic swimmer. Right. Isn't (laughs) that crazy? They probably won't. Darn it. (laughs) Gosh darn it. Don't. I hope they're not She doesn't have those big hands (laughs) and those big feet. So we want to lay off those things. Another thing is this is a really stressful time where parents have a hard time keeping their patience. This back to school when kids are coming home, even if school has started and they want to be out with friends, not doing homework and they want to do a million other things and follow that summer routine. Why do I have to go to bed on time? And why do I have to, you know, why does it matter what I eat so much and who I'm with so much? And so if we want to have patience, if we'll take a step back and just ask one key question, it will help here. We need to ask ourselves, how would we want our five-year-old to be treated by someone else? Mm. And it's this really amazing question we can ask ourselves and all of a sudden we go, well, geez, I sure wouldn't want them to yell at my five-year-old like I just did. Don't want that. Or I sure would want them to be much more patient and and persevering with them with their issues and their upsetness and all that's going on. And so if we can ask ourselves, how would I want someone to treat my eight-year-old right now? Or how would I want someone to treat our son who just went back to school and swim started and he's trying to juggle homework and new class? Well, I'd, I'd want them to be understanding. And I'd want them to be patient. And I'd want them to reach out and give them a hug and tell them I got your back. So good. The funny thing is, though, we then would say that about someone else, like the neighbor or a teacher, but we're not doing it. No. So we need to ask ourselves that question and then act in response to what that answer is. Awesome. And treat treat our kids that way. Great insight. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Heather Johnson. You can go to her website, familyvolley.com, to continue to get uh, more insights into everything she's working on, including um, her book, Family Fun Fridays, soon to be releasing uh, Family Fun Saturdays through Thursdays. 
Good stuff. Heather's uh, keeping us on track and our family as well. Stick with us. We'll be back. Welcome back. We're talking about uh, how to help our kids return to their routines, how to make a smooth transition back to school. Heather Johnson's helping us with that from FamilyVolley.com. She's a professor here at BYU and uh, teaches students and principals behind the, the principles behind successful families and the importance of family time together. Heather, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. And uh, teach us what else. What else do we need to do to get them on track? Get I mean, really, some of this is planning, preparation, anticipating. I mean, we are we already know a lot of the problems, but we just it's almost like we we just don't ever want to think about it. Right, and it takes effort, right? I mean, we're talking about this literally, at least for our family, one month before they go back yeah. to school, and it's very easy to think, wait, we're right in the middle of summer. Why do we need to think that way already? But remember, our job as parents is to help our children succeed and to set them up to have the tools that they need to navigate what comes next. And this is coming next. And so even some of the things we've already talked about, like not planning a family vacation or a trip back to back with the first day of school. If we're going to do that, we kind of have to wrap up that family vacation in the next week or so. So we got to think ahead. We got to think ahead when we're looking at these things. Uh, The next suggestion is I want you to start playing backwards, get to know you with your kids. And this is what I mean by that. It's very easy once they start to go to school. It's always about the teacher getting to know them. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really great challenge and a really great exercise if as parents we'll reach out to the teachers beforehand and gather a bunch of information about the teachers so that our kids know the teachers long before they step in their classroom. Oh, that's cool. And these are some different type of things like what's your teacher's favorite food? What's their most embarrassing moment? What do they like to do in their free time? What's their favorite color, you know, which would be more applicable to your first grade? greater than it might mm-hmm. be to your 17-year-old who's a junior type thing. But if you can reach out and gather some of that information and bring it back to your children long before they meet, all of a sudden that teacher is real to them. You can look for similarities. You can look for differences. You can teach your children about that teacher and, and help them understand they're a real person. It makes it a lot easier to walk into a classroom. They're not a stranger anymore. You walk in and go, my teacher loves tacos or my teacher's favorite color is pink. Look, she has it all over her board. Or I know that my teacher all summer has been, I don't know, in Colorado because he loves to rock climb. Hmm. How awesome is it for our children to have that knowledge and know their teacher's a real person instead of this person who's going to sit there and give me homework and made me quit summer. Right. Which is kind they of the feeling everything. we have, right? Well, and, and it, it seems like it would – you'd alleviate a lot of anxiety. Right. And that's what we're trying to do because it's not going to not get here. Right. The first day it's of school happening. is going to happen. Yeah. And so if we can take away that anxiety for them by sending them in already knowing some of those things – and how cool for a teacher to get an email from a parent that says, hey, listen, I'm looking to alleviate this anxiety. I want our children to recognize that you're real and a mm. person and, and know you. Can you tell me a few things about you like – what you did all summer. Yeah. 
what's the most embarrassing situation and what's your favorite food? Have you been arrested? Uh, <laughs> please let me know. And and how frequently, right? That's right. Background check. And so that way we can we can help our children be really comfortable walking into that room. Yeah. And as a teacher too, I mean, I would think that they'd love someone to reach out and think, oh, wow, they care that right. I, have, I have a life outside of this classroom and who I am and what I like to do. That's great. So it helps on both ends. So play that game backwards. Instead of waiting for them to get to know your child, which they will because they're great and they're teachers – do it the other way and show that teacher some care and concern and then teach your child why that, why that matters. That's great So we're going to go that yeah. way. Uh, another thing, when school does start, we still need to ease our children in like we've talked about into the full-fledged routine of it all. So it's really important to allow our children free time every day. So first day of school is not when you bring them home and have six hours of extracurricular homework for them, right? Go to school, come home, go play. The next day, go to school, come home, work for about 10 minutes, go play. Mm, yeah, build <laughs> a plan. The next day, yeah. go to school, come home, work for about 25, go play. And start transitioning them in so that each day they still can make their choices. And really, you haven't just cut off their oxygen supply right away. Yeah. If you can do that for about two, three weeks, I mean, those first two weeks of school, there, there really isn't that much – going on homework-wise anyways, right. right? The first three days are like, have your parents sign these papers. And a few days after that, it's we'll get our books and our curriculum. So let them ease back in. 10-minute increments is a really great way to advance with anything. And it works that way too. Increase what they have to do with school and with exercises 10 minutes each day and allow them that free That's time. So good. Yeah. I mean, it might even be the time to 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 go back and check on all those goals that we set before summer. Absolutely. Like, everyone's going to read a book. Right. How... So maybe this last month is when they should start. <laughs> and maybe, you know, you're finishing up that book and school already has started. That's right. It's, it's okay. It's okay to do those things. So allow that free time every day. We've already talked about this a little bit, but it's really important that as parents, we get our crap in order long yeah, before we, school starts. Yeah, we totally do. And that's kind of the only way to put it. Yeah. That's, but that, you know... that's probably the biggest problem, right? Right. And, and we're not ready, and so we hurt our kids because we're not ready. We're behind whether it's on you know housework or planning or organization or they need a lunch the first day and we haven't been to the store in two months like little things like that we've got to mentally be ready mm. we've got to have the calendar ready we've got to know what's coming up we've got to be prepared so that we're not hindering their ability yeah. to make this transition that brings up a good point do you think that we should make sure that my son has a bed yeah because <laughs> we took Before his bed out starts. of his room and threw it away and then now he just sleeps in the guest room yeah well is there a bed in the guest room yeah well so he's on a bed so but like I'm thinking by, by but yeah. maybe by the time school starts, yeah. we ought to have him back in his room yeah, if he could with have a, a bed. Right. If he could have a room with his own space that he That'd could own and, you know, take care of and yeah. manage. Yeah, he might feel a little more That's secure good. that way. Yeah. So maybe that's your homework this right. week right? Oh, is, is to get that set up. So we're going to get ourselves in order. A couple other things. We're always talking about how we need to transition back into a bedtime routine. Mm -hmm. And we do. But the funny thing is we neglect to realize that we need a wake-up routine also. And so our kids who have been sleeping sleeping in till like 10, 11, 12, what, depending on their age and get yeah. to sleep in. We've got to do the same thing in the morning as we're now starting to do at night. And so a great way to do this is to just simply wake your kids up 10 minutes earlier. Like I said, 10 is kind of this magic number, 10 minutes earlier each morning. So even starting about three weeks, two weeks before they're going back to school, just get them up 10 minutes earlier yeah. and then a day or two later, 10 minutes earlier. And before you know it, you'll have a good solid week where they're getting up more comfortable mm -hmm. and it's school time. They'll also be going to bed earlier because right. they're tired. Right. And so on both ends, you're starting to see that. But we're really quick to say, OK, it's getting close to school. We got to get back to our, our, our regular bedtime. Right. But then we still let them sleep in the morning uh, yeah. <laughs> and let and, and it 
kind of defeats the purpose. Interesting. So we want to look. Good. We want to look at mornings too. And again, it, you going in and saying you've been sleeping till ten, get up at seven. That's just mean. Like I don't want oh, somebody yeah. to do that that's to me. Torture. So go in those very small increments over the next four, you know, weeks and start to wake them up a little bit. It's cool. And lastly, uh, it's really important that we can give our kids or that we do give our kids all the information we possibly can. Uh, it's very easy if your child's been at the same school for a couple years to say, we don't know, to, we don't need to go to back to school night. We go, we don't need to go to meet your teacher. Yeah. We don't need to do this. Regardless of if they have or not, go to those things. Mm-hmm. Empower them with as much information as you can. And it will take away the fear and anxiety that they have going in. Even if they know their school, you know, back to front, walk into that classroom, walk the route, just familiarize them with the process again, and it won't make it so anxious for them. It's huge. And, and we can see this in, in lots of ways. I'm even thinking uh, we just took a big step, my husband and I, and put our two oldest kids on a plane by themselves mm. to go to a swim camp in California. And my brother who lives there was is kind enough this week to kind of pick them up and show for them around. And they called last night to tell us how things were going. And they paid the greatest compliment to him. I said, are you nervous? How are you feeling about tomorrow? And they said, no, because my brother, their uncle, had provided them with all the information they needed to govern their themselves. Oh, that's great. And so I said, "You're not. there's no nerves. And our daughter said, no, because I know all the paths and I know how to do everything. He showed us all of those things. And it was just kind of a, another example where whether it's us or the people around us who love our children too, the more information we give them, the more knowledge they have, the more they're able to manage what might Absolutely. come, whether it's a state away or right in our own communities. So when it comes to school, give give it all to them. Lay it all out. Show them what a week looks like. Show them what their days will look like. Show them the path to school and out and let them have the information yeah. so that they can know what's coming. And get ahead and get ahead. it all. And, and even practice, you know, with our daughter, she worries about lunch. So we practice what 11.15 feels like in a day. Mm-hmm. So when lunch starts at 11.15 in a month, she knows what it feels yep. like inside about 11.15. That's so great. Just work with them. That's right. Work and with them. in the end, let's just say they did half of your ideas What's We're, the harm? What's I mean, the, you're, you're no ahead. Harm. There's less you're tears. Ahead. There's right. less stress. And That's there's right. a much easier transition back into this routine. That's right. Plus, yeah, you get in the routine as well. Yeah. Well done. Heather Johnson's her name. Go check out the website, familyvolley.com, uh, for more ideas, more information on how to live a healthier family life. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. we got a lot to cover. Walking, walking and rolling Out to my car I'm strolling But the big bear's blocking my car Not fun, I said big bear Hmm, stop it now Everyone told me just to go in reverse Said Big Bear's bound to move Nudge him in the coconut But he didn't But he didn't Have me going like Yeah Yeah Nothing I could do but wait When this Big Bear blocked me When I tried to yell it seems That Big Bear was laughing And then Bear made his way to my refrigerator Stealing my ice cream I just wait, wait, wait and yawn Watching him chomp on my bonbons 
eat, 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 then stop. Stop it now. Welcome back. Uh, that song, uh, n- now one of the top charts on YouTube. Um, about Definitely on this show. The bear eating the snacks out of that uh, lady's garage today. That was it. In Wisconsin, was it? The bear was uh, was blocking this woman yeah. from getting out of her garage. And apparently had been feeding on, you know, junk food around the neighborhood. Bonbons, mm. M&M's, ice cream. And then they turned it into a song about blocking the car. Boy. It's called it, Bear Stop It Now. Bear Stop It Now. Uh, it's very similar to um, the Yoda song with seagulls. What is that called? Seagulls Stop It Now. Oh, interesting. Lots of animals that need to stop it now. now. Yeah. In fact, uh, we, we were normally at this time we go visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, but they got caught up in a in a major interview that you're not going to want to miss in about seven minutes probably. Um, so we, unless they run it tomorrow, unless they run it tomorrow, no. not to set you up to fail. But uh, back to some animal stories. One crazy elephant we were talking about earlier went for a swim. Huh, Tara? Yeah. So an elephant has been rescued. Uh, uh, from the off the ocean, the ocean coast, coast. I guess, ten miles out from Sri Lanka's wow. northern east co- northeast coast, the country's navy said. Uh, navy personnel said the pachyderm was caught in a current off the coast near the uh, off the coast and dragged into the ocean, where it was spotted by a patrol boat. The wildlife officials and other naval vessel were deba- dispatched to the area to help drag the animal back to shore. It was a twelve-hour rescue. Divers aided by wildlife officials approached the distressed elephant, tied ropes to it before towing it gently to shallower waters, where mm. it was then released. Um, let's see here. They said they're very normally they're very good swimmers. They swim about fifteen. Finding one fifteen miles from or fifteen kilometers from the shore is not unusual for an elephant. He goes, but still, the Navy's intervention was probably necessary because they can't keep swimming for long because they burn a lot of energy and get tired. Yeah. And uh, so the the salt water isn't good for their skin. In this case, the uh, situation probably warranted human intervention. Oh, yeah. They did. So they were able to lasso it, basically rope it up, and then gently tug it back to shore, get rope it, out, it of the, up. out of the current there. So, By the way, rope and tug, I think that's a – isn't that a, a country western band out of Sri Lanka? It could be. Rope and tug. It's also the way you get an elephant 10 miles offshore. <laughs> Back to shore. But, I mean, if you think about it, they could go under the water and you just put your trunk up. You could breathe. Can you imagine just being in a little, you know, just a little rowboat, maybe doing a little fishing, and out of nowhere, some trunk reaches over and starts breathing on you? He caught a big one. It was as big as an elephant. You will not believe what I caught in the ocean. Holy cow. So there's the video. I'll put it up on Twitter here in a few minutes. Uh, it really, it puts its head down underwater for a long time. Yeah. just keeps It's the probably trunk almost walking. Yeah. It's, it's it that tall. It's just a matter it can't turn around. And well, keep... and eventually you'd get tired. Yeah. Right? Plus, I would. Plus, I just think having all the other elephants laughing at you. Yeah, that would be the tough part. The man who caught him was 10 feet tall if he was an inch. <laughs> Arms big as tree trunks. By the way, uh, speaking of uh, tree trunks, a Florida man is tired of walking, and so he steals a forklift. Now, that sounds like a story we've done before, and it is, but it's the same man, and he stole another forklift. 
Florida man, two months ago, uh, has struck again. This this crazy forklift stealing man. Uh, he just didn't want to walk. Bradley Barefoot is his last name. Forty three. <laughs> was coincidentally barefoot when he stole a forklift on Wednesday. Deputies found barefoot uh, as he parked the equipment in a spot for handicapped drivers. He told deputies he took the vehicle because the keys were in the ignition and he was tired of walking. According to the reports, a similar incident happened in April when barefoot stumbled upon a forklift in a Best Buy parking lot. He reportedly moved some boxes and took it for a spin. Can you stumble upon a forklift? Well, apparently... He did. He so stumbled. He, he was didn't. too tired to walk, but yeah. he wasn't too tired to rearrange all the boxes no. to get to the forklift. But at what point? I mean, how often have you ever even seen a forklift in a parking lot? Oh, you hear them all the time. Yeah. It just seems like people are setting him up to fail. They keep. It's like he's the victim here. Is what you're yeah, saying? If you love sugar, you can't keep candy and sugar around that person. So they need to keep <laughs> forklifts away from Bradley Barefoot. They're being insensitive. If they cared at all, they, would, they wouldn't They would do that to poor Bradley. Anyway, we wish him the best of luck. Uh, we hope someday that he'll learn his lesson. Um, but, you know, beggars can't be choosers. By the way, four lions escape uh, South Africa's Kruger Park. So if you are listening from Johannesburg, you might want to listen up to this one. Male, the male lions, all four of them, Escape from the Kruger National Park, which is a main tourist attraction, on Sunday night, were spotted in the, the Matsulu Village, South African National Parks, said in a statement. The area around Kruger contains villages, farms, and they, where they raise cattle and livestock, as well as people at risk. Uh, so that puts a lot of people at risk of attack, right? So you better just hope that, uh, you know, they find livestock and not tourists. Just keep your eyes open there, okay? By the way, they've so far they've killed sheep. They've done everything. Hey, we got a hero story for you as we wrap it up. Back in June, uh, Randy Tompkins and his wife, Heather, decided to enjoy a nice uh, calming ride in their truck. The couple was waiting at a stoplight when a blue car moving slowly, it was in the wrong lane and headed straight for their truck. So Tompkins uh, backed his truck, his vehicle back, uh, you know, averting an accident. And then as he looked over at the person that was driving this car, he said, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what that he was having a seizure until uh, he got into the intersection. Tompkins said that what happened next was a bit of a blur, but the city's newest hero just did what he had to do. He said, my adrenaline was pumping and I reacted. Tompkins put his truck in park, ran over to the moving car, crawled through the passenger window. And as he was getting the car in park, police officers who had seen the vehicle run the red light approached the car. And Tompkins then instinctively put his fingers inside the driver's mouth as he was having a seizure to keep him from swallowing his tongue. Which, by the way, isn't recommended because you could have your fingers taken off. But uh, he saved the man's life, helping him be able to restore his breathing. One guy. Avoids an accident and saves a life. Pretty cool. That, my friends, is a hero story. And that is the show. We'll be back again tomorrow. We're here Monday through Friday, 9 to noon on Eastern uh, Eastern Time. You can find us on iTunes, on Stitcher. Go to BYURadio.org. But BYU Sports Nation is up next, so it doesn't end. Until tomorrow, make it a great one. We'll talk again tomorrow.